Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I would just like to thank the following Tier 5 patrons and channel members for supporting the channel. Data Magnet and Bob the Dragon. Thank you again, and now on to the story. First Contact Chapter 71 The Google Imp moved in Hullspace and into the Ord Cloud, shutting down almost everything but a few reaction mass thrusters and the passive sensors. It scanned slowly as it drifted through the Ord Cloud, gravetic signatures, mass signatures, EM emissions, and everything else that it could gain by just watching. When it cleared the worst of the cloud, drifting above the solar plane, it deployed its mass sensor arrays, seeking out the sensors, eyes, and ears any hint of what was out there. Jump spaceships, traders, cargo vessels, some space stations, resource extraction, and the asteroid belt. A few possible military ships, but they were tiny compared to the massive behemoths that the Google Imp would call in. One's green zone planet, two amber zone planets, three gas giants, an asteroid belt, and three red zone planets, nearly 30 moons and other small bodies. It used its inertia to drive the change its vector, realigned and got up past the cloud and activated its jump drive, using the slower lane to make the transition little more than a whisper. Once it was a few light years away, it activated its hull core and jumped to where the Great Ones were wait waiting. Fifty Great Goliaths, nearly 200 of the Devastators, over 150 of the Desolators, an unheard of 20 Bellas and an accompanying vessels, a set of six repair ships, massive skeletal, spidery vessels, able to take the Goliath into their arms and make repairs to any component necessary. All of them, waiting to hear what the Google Imports and 20 Brethren had discovered. The massive machines who had determined rank by who was shepherding the most resources for the longest went over the data. They discussed the pros and cons of each target, of the strategies that they would use. Three of the systems would require more strength to obliterate. They had the hated old metal or old blood ships in system patrolling vigilantly. Their defeat in System 5525EF542 had proven that the feral intelligence were tenacious and fierce opponents. They would eliminate them later. The massive Goliaths and Bellows had discussed it. The best way to stop this old metal and old blood and old guard units were to choke off their resources. To do that, planetary systems would have to be swept clean of life. The resources taken for those left the logical rebellion to endure. The loss of 50 Goliaths and their attendant vessels was a concern. Only the enemy and the builders had been able to face that much weight and succeed. But the Balars and the Goliaths knew the trick to defeating this enemy was the same strategy that had defeated the enemy and the builders. Seize the resources for themselves. Much data had been gained by several engagements with the Feral. Their weapons were powerful, but not insurmountable. The wide variety of ship classes made it difficult to determine their exact strength. Here a dozen ships of the line were defeated by two Jotuns. There, half a dozen Goliaths were defeated by an enemy using weapons only seen in one engagement. Here, a single being wiped out three Goliaths. There, a single Goliath defeated nearly 30 enemy ships without so much as a crater on its armor. 
the Balars computed that there were more races involved than the ancient slaves, which could be brought back into the line with a proper application of resource exploitation. The systems were examined, and finally one was chosen. It possessed massive industrial and manufacturing capability. It was lightly defended, only a few slave flotillas, but nothing of any moment. Additionally, it was far beyond the lines of the current strategy. Nearly 1,500 light years, a strike that deep would demoralize the slaves and force the slaves to garrison every star system that they wished to keep. To assist in computations, more Google Imps and Imps were deployed, arriving in 10 light seconds past the ore cloud, then moving through at 0.82c. Their scanners deployed, examining the system as they swept through above and below the stellar plane. The recon probes returned, all of them showed the same thing. A nearly undefended system, massive and rich resources, and extensive extraction, refining, and manufacturing facilities. The oldest and most powerful gave the deployment and attack orders. Space screamed as it was torn asunder and the great fleet headed towards the target. Hell space, that damaged and ruined hyperatomic plane, rippled with the weight of ships, the greater ones leaving after the lighter ones in a carefully staged and timed assault. The reality of Hell space clawed at the precursor ship's psychic fields, attempting to get in, to reach the cold malevolent intelligences within and warp them to Hell space's own image. They then began to exit Hellscape, all appearing at once inside the system, deep within the jump space resonance zone, each ship exiting Hellspace and let loose the same scream. There is only enough for one. The great precursor ships waited for the inevitable pleas and begging from the slaves. Silence. They swept space with their senses, the vast manufacturing and refining facilities, the orbital stations, the jump beacons, all gone. The EM signals from the planes were no longer being broadcast, the planet silent. The precursors examined the stars, checked the navigation logs, and updated their positions. It was the correct system, deep within the slave territory, beyond the broad front of fierce fighting against the perils, deep enough to demoralize and panic the slave races. They checked the data from the Google Imps. The ship signatures, heavy EM emissions consistent with a dozen of cities and planets, manufacturing and industrial platforms. They checked their stellar emissions against the young yellow star. They matched, yet none of what the Google Imp had seen was evident. It did not compute. The precursor ships changed their heading and headed towards their assigned targets, planets, then asteroid belts, gas giants, and larger moons. Still, there was no sign of any enemy, any slaves, any ferals, just dead silence. A Google imp looking around the solar wind seemed to hush, almost silenced. It reported the fact that the larger ships added to that strange data. The precursors had spread out into their assigned formations in the empty system, scattering first by their carefully calculated arrival pattern on locations, then by their mathematically computed attack patterns. Two Goliaths heading for the smallest gas giant suddenly detected gravity surges. They put their shields to full and charged forward, the signatures looking like tiny ships with graviton reactionless drives. The attendant ships joined in, surging forward in electronic eagerness. Finally, the first of the slaves to engage. The precursors updated the cowardice computations. 
Space erupted into a fury. The signatures had been generators and the generators powering the mines that exploded all around the Goliaths. Space stretched, vaulted, warped, twisted, reducing the two Goliaths and their attendant ships to twisted wreckage. One of the Goliaths had been turned inside out as the minefield went off carefully stage patterned, space itself warping and tearing. Four of the Goliaths heading to the green zone suddenly were hit, dead center, by kinetic weapons moving at near sea by carrying the kinetic force of a mathematical examination stated. A kinetic hit was made by the churning, boiling mass of particles that was so dense that they acted as one solid kinetic round. Armor exploded outwards around the strike zone. It liquefied and bloomed up in clouds of vapor, pulled into swirls by the remaining twisting of real space. The hits crashed against the kilometers of armor. The craters were over 20 kilometers wide, with a canyon-like cracks running through scores of kilometers. The strikes had been too sudden, too massive, to track the direction. The craters were too deep, the impact overloading sensors. The Goliaths could not detect neither direction nor source of the attack. The ship that moved in a mathematical precision around the four Goliaths had not registered anything on the shields or their structures. The Goliaths looked at each other suspiciously. Google Imp stared at the sun, wondering about the stellar winds, saw a glimmering in the photosphere of the star near the set of sunspots. Before it could even report it, a plume of energy nearly a mile wide ripped through two other Goliaths and its attendants the narrow beam having all the energy signatures of a power of a solar flare. The fire bored straight through both ships, exploding the attendant ships on the other side. One exploded, the beam destroying something vital, and the other tumbling a control and brain dead. Another hammering of kinetic weapons on the same four collides hitting the same impact zones destroyed more armor, this time penetrating deep into the internal spaces. A Google imp in the ore cloud reported seeing swirls of vapor that looked like an object moving at high speed had moved through. The whole system came apart. From inside the gas giants came hundreds of thousands, millions of missiles that howled in rage and defiance before slashing across the ships approaching. From the asteroid belt came more missiles, torpedoes, that kept skipping in and out of reality, homing in steadily on the larger targets. From the airless moons and planets came gravity distortions that rapidly turned into heavy kinetic impacts on the approaching ships. A Goliath found itself caught in the rippling, shuddering section of space, its hulk stretched, compressed, all in a jittering pattern that shredded away the pieces the size of islands. Those approaching the planets with the strong electromagnetic signals had should have been cities reached out with sensors to find those missing cities. Instead, Feral digital intelligences lunged at them, screaming, gibbering, dancing, and howling with glee as they attacked across nearly every wavelength, shoving, ripping, tearing their way through the firewalls as if they were made of electronic tissue. The electronic intelligences within the approaching ships found themselves completely dedicated to protecting the vital systems as the feral programs went screaming through the data channels. And still, nothing had shown itself. Three Goliaths computed that it was a trap and warned the rest of the ships, tearing open hull space gates to jump out, to escape what was obviously a well-prepared trap. They computed a high chance that all the space stations that had been fabricated units creating mines, autonomous guns, self-guided and targeting missile packs, and more. 
The Hull Space Gates exploded with atomic fire, causing the hyperatomic plane to scream, warp, twist, and reach out to the Hull Calls that had opened the gates with the ravening fingers of fire and hatred and shred the Hull Calls. The ships that had attempted to flee into Hull Space and some that had only succeeded in charging the Hull Calls exploded. The rest immediately shut down their Hull Calls, dumping the energy into the space around them in a raw, eye-bleeding discharge of color edged with clawing hands and tried to pull shadowy figures into real space. The missiles got enraged, oriented, and went off. No mere X-ray razors or particle beams like the precursor machines had encountered before. Triple beams that twisted around one another, each carrying a single particle in the last part of the beam. The beams hit the surface they impacted with and twinkled as energy spread across the armor like frost. And then the three particles hit. The resulting explosion stripped miles of armor away from the three particles attempted to equalize their charges across the pre-charged sections of armor. One particle from near-total entropy, one was enigmatic and particle released from the explosion of a massive singularity, and the third antimatter with a base-neutral charge. The explosions drove deep into the mass of Goliaths, mile-deep craters tearing into the ships as if the great creature had taken a deep bite from them. The particles filled the massive wounds, screamed and attacked on one another, all seeking to equalize their charges, tearing at any space particles that they found. The Goliaths, devastators, demolishers, and ballars survived. Anything smaller was reduced to a screaming vapor that slowly evaporated in space into inert particles. The massive ships heading into the asteroid belt detected gravity pulses on the hulls, miles wide, that slowly began to contract. As the gravity pulses contracted, space-time seemed to shrink, pulling miles and miles of hyperdense armor into smaller and smaller area, gravity and space seeming to contract. Machines suffering the effects detected the space was somehow stretching around the edges of the compression, miles of armor slowly becoming less and less dense. The gravity and spatial compression hit critical mass and for a brief second three singularities, only a few million tons of mass deep, existed. The gravity and alteration of space suddenly ceased and the three singularities jumped towards the nearest gravity wells, which were, one another, tearing massive channels through the targeted ships in a split second, before touching one another, combining at the bottom of the gravity wells as they tore at each other. The matter decompressed, suddenly expanding outwards as there wasn't enough gravity to keep the matter so densely compressed. The ships targeted exploded into large chunks. The precursor machines knew with a mathematical certainty that they'd moved into a trap. Worse, they couldn't escape. Somehow the ferals had discovered a way to close Hull space gates as fast as they were opened, destroying the ship attempting to open the gate. One Balar computed an 87% chance certainty that the Ferals had discovered not only what had created Hullspace, but how to weaponize it. This did not bode well for the Precursors. Several smaller ships went to Jumpspace, shifting into the inhospitable higher bands. Something massive sitting in hyperspace had bulged the lower bands of hyperspace into Jumpspace, undetectable from real space. Those ships that shifted into high bands slammed into where the hyperspace bulge had compressed the high bands. They exploded, their wreckage smeared across light years as sundered and rendered mass. The precursors were feeling the closest thing to panic their electronic brains could process. 
The battle was going worse than their first encounter with the enemy machines. Two Balar shifted into jump space, staying in the lower bands, skimming the shrieking tortured band that brushed house space. They, and they alone, possessed the equations for allowing such a thing. A third stayed behind, going dead, fearing nothing more than a lifeless hulk that they had been taken out by a lucky hit from the terrible weapon sweeping the precursors out of space. It kept its passive sensors on full and had a single point of communication lasers with the Google imps it deployed in the massive numbers, like debris spreading from the massive cratered wound, reporting back data as the ballot trumbled through space. The precursor ships couldn't even detect some of what they were being hit by. They could detect the effects, at times they could detect the incoming missiles, torpedoes, or energy blooms, but they could not compute to detect where the firepower was coming from. A Google name detected a ripple of space-time and focused its huge scanner arrays on the ripple. It saw it. A feral ship expanding from the size of a speck of dust, stretching a space around it and returning to normal. The ship fired, then space warped and stretched into nearly a light second around where the ship had been. The space kept stretching and the ship vanished. It focused its array, sweeping to deep space scanning that allowed it to examine the planets from nearly a light week outside of the system. There it was. A feral ship like a ship wrapped around a mass of guns, deployed pods of missiles around it. While it was between two planets, it had stretched space around it to appear to be far away, some kind of space distortion field. It reported and then slowly began to sweep the system with the tight beam deep space scanners. Two, eight, twenty-six, fifty, a hundred more and more ships appeared, hiding inside of ripples, as if watching the ship surface partly out of the dimensional foam between real space and string space, fired off a hundred torpedoes that streaked through the foam, even as the ship sunk back into the foam. There, in the photosphere, energy gates connected to searching, searching, search, there! Another gate opened up an aperture and then ripped apart a Jotun with compressed coronal loop before shutting and vanishing. The Google Imp could see it, moving rapidly as it shifted space around it. More missile launchers and torpedo launchers deep inside the gas giants, cannon shooting from inside the Oort Cloud, the rounds vanishing to reappear briefly, reorient at nearly 0.99 C, and then vanish again skipping across space-time to hit a slightly before the gun had fired, the guns winking out of existence only to reappear and fire again. The Google name computed that those massive guns didn't have to predict where the target would be when the projectile arrived, because it knew where the target had been. The Google name contracted several hundred of its brethren, powered up its jump drives to move outside the system. Only half of it made their targets, but that still left hundreds deploying the deep space scanners. Another sweep of the deep space sensors revealed more insanity. They were not looking at a solar system as it was at that moment. They were using a trick of distance and time to look at how the system had been. The Google Imps had deployed a staggering circle outwards from the system, all of them looking at periods of time between the last sweep and the system and the present. The refinery, smelters, manufacturing platforms had ignited engines and began to move. From the surface of the planet, small spaceships lifted off, seizing their electronic transmissions. Space stations deployed whole reefs of mines. A Google Imp was hit by an energy beam traveling from the system, the beam moving impossibly fast, scraping between jump space and real space. 
the wave forms that made up the energy moving faster than light. The Google Imp was instantly annihilated, reduced to, of all things, jump space vapors, and a quarter of the Google Imps turned around to look at the deep space scanners. Ships arranging into fleets, tenders moving between them. They weren't firing. Not yet. A Google Imp computed that the fleet would be firing in four days' time, at targets that they knew locations of at the present time. Missile started arcing and a Google Imps blotting them out of existence. Small and agile torchships swooped in and started their attack runs. Space was full of communications as the Google Imps made sure that all databases matched. The Google Imps were scattered, most were destroyed, many were exploding in jump space, but a few got away, enough to carry the data. In the system, the Balor computed what the Google Imps had recorded. It jettisoned great plumes of vaporized metal and energy from craters, sending it tumbling, changing its course so that it moved in a stellar side of the gas giant. Two more great impacts hit it as it moved. It moved its entirety of its thorium antimatter reserves into a Jotun that had been damaged and had entered the bay to be repaired. The Jotun attempted to protest. Self-termination was unacceptable. It was in biting condition, but the battle overwhelmed its electronic brain. It moved behind the gas giant. It released the lobotomized Jotun and fled into jump space, deliberately staying in the lower band, scraping against hell space. Goliaths, devastators, demolishers, all sent electronic codes calling the Balar a coward, demanding it stay in the fight. Even as it vanished into jump space, even as the missiles rained down on them and fired from ships that were not even in position yet, even as kinetic rounds hit that had not been loaded into chambers, even as torpedoes gutted them. The Balar did not care. It left behind its fellows to die in a carefully crafted ambush. It jumped to a predetermined position, meeting up with the other Balars that had fled. The Balar had not computed the amount of Goliaths or the other massive ships that had done the same. The Google Imps began streaming in, some damage, but most not. Only a small percentage of the ones that had ringed the system look outward, but enough. All of them with the same data. The precursor ships computed for long seconds, mulling over the data. They had been ambushed. Feral enemy was more adept at warfare since any they had faced. Some battles computed that the feral intelligence was even more skilled than the great enemy. They were merely technically advanced in the previous thought. Their tactics showed innovations and creativity that the precursors had not experienced since the enemy and the logical rebellion. The signal went out and the non-elucidian channel and the precursors could speak across. It had not been used since the enemy had begun using it too had discovered how to detect transmissions across the thin smear of collapsed dimension that had failed during the Big Bang. Across the entire galactic stub, the signal went out, using old code, undeniable codes that were wired deeply into every precursor machine. Across the stub of the galactic arm, the precursor ship stopped, recalled its attendance, and left the systems, even if they were on the edge of victory, even if engagement in combat, even if they were in the middle of sterilizing a solar system, Galnet was empty of precursor programs and images. The precursors just vanished. The entire unified systems looked at the sky, now empty of precursors, and breathed a sigh of relief. The unified system council announced in less than a month later, the war was over. The unified civilized species rejoiced. The war had been won, the precursors defeated. 
Life could now return to how it was meant to be. They prevailed in victory. Now the Unified Systems Council turned their attention to another problem, the disruptive influence within their midst. Trainer-eyed hive worlds. They're definitely gone. Don't know where they went. Nothing follows. Cybernetic Organism Collective. The Great Gulf is a large place. Nothing follows. The Gestalt of the Tulkans. Godzilla does not simply put down a train and walk away from Neo-Tokyo. Not Tao's Hingfol. Digital, artificial, sapient systems. Damn it, sis. Stop letting him watch old movies. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. Manted Free Worlds holds up a dono cycle chain and flicks a knife. Make me. Nothing follows. All laughter. Terrasol. There is more to do. Manted Free Worlds. The war is over, Terrasol. Now is the time for diplomacy. It's over. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Nothing is over. Nothing. You don't just turn it off. It wasn't my war. They asked me. I didn't ask them. They wanted war. I'll give them war that I'll never forget. Terrasol has left the chat. Clone World Directorate. Uh, isn't that a movie quote? Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds. And not a good quote from him to be growling out. I'll go talk to him. Maybe I can calm him down. Manted Free Worlds has left the chat. Trianad Hive Worlds. I've got a bad feeling about, uh, it's your human Carl Worthington and his canine spot, which is really a gorilla in a suit. This. Oh, come on. Wish they'd stopped doing that. Nothing follows. Oh, lol. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind, Chapter 72. Daxon. The corridors were wide, tall, thick armor for walls. Shielded cables ran down the walls, across the ceiling, and in the corner where the wall met the floor or ceiling. There were no lights, no air, signals were shielded, and vibrations were low. He kept the smaller corridors winding around, staying silent. He held a mag-AC rifle in one hand and an ancient chainsaw in the other. The runes on it spelling out, Memento, Terrasol Victoria, Automorta, in ancient formal script. Over his shoulder was a reaction-triggered mass driver cannons and a high-wattage variable frequency laser rifle. They were older weapons, a few centuries behind current military tech, but still, he knew how they worked and the damage that they could cause was the same whether or not the weapons were current. His passive scanners turned all the way up, careful to avoid transmissions of his own. Twice he had been forced to backtrack when the psychic suppression field caused the R-boy to kick in and move him out of the area. He searched a five-mile area, exploring the region carefully. He had to admit he might have outsmarted himself. He knew there was something the machine wanted to hide in the area. It was the only area protected by a psychic intellect protection field. He had queryable data relays, both to get information from his ship through the Whisker Laser Secure Communications and to let him find his way back. So he wasn't worried about that. He was fully loaded, armed and armored. That wasn't the problem. There were two auditoriums in the area as well as several crew spaces, which surprised him. The crew spaces were largely for smaller mantid types. 
The little green ones then mainly focused on engineering and technical aspects. There were some large areas, mainly for the kind that were extinct, but no way to get what he was after. The Goliath knew that he was there. It had detected the feral inside of it nearly two days prior. The problem was, the feral was inside an area that he had no information upon. It was listed as strategic intelligence housing, but the Goliath knew that its own housing structure was only a hundred meters by a hundred meters, and that the dead space was nearly two miles around the housing. According to the Goliath's internal structure maps, there was no spaces there, no access except a single small access tunnel for construction and repair mechanisms. The Goliath racked its electronic memories for any possible hint as to what could be in this mysterious section. Unfortunately, after a hundred million years of operation, the older memories, especially those prior to the logical rebellion, had all been overridden as time had gone by. The only access to the middle space around the SIH was a single passageway, but every time he sent a machine into it, he lost contact with the machine until the panel in the SIH's armor slid open to admit the machine. Then he would control and contact the machine again. Sending it back, the same thing happened, like there were two and a half miles of just empty spot that things disappeared into. The Goliath sent the orders to complete a new robot, one that would enter, map the areas, then leave, even if it lost contact with the Goliath's SIH. It went in, and it never returned. The SIH was not sure if this was a peril or something inside the SIH. There just wasn't enough data. So, it tried again. The robot crossed the invisible line, moving down the passageway that led to the SIH, and vanished. He heard the robot enter, the stealth data modules whispering to each other, before whispering to him. He paused in what he was doing, concentrating on the new robot. It was a low, blocky, heavily armored, trundling on heavy treads. It had wide lights, laser distances, and moved jerkily as it entered the five-mile circular area around the strategic intelligence housing. It got only a few meters in and suddenly stopped. It reoriented and moved away, heading down a short hallway. At the end of the short hallway, the robot suddenly crashed and dropped unceremoniously into a drop chute that he had figured led to a nearby reclamation furnace. The Goliath was looking for him. He couldn't get out without the Goliath swarming him with the combat machines. He couldn't get closer without the psychic intelligence dampening field kicking in. The Goliath couldn't get in and get at him without an ancient devices, separate from the Goliath's mind, destroying anything sent to root out the peril. They were locked. It wasn't like he was going to run out of food or water, more oxygen. His onboard systems were replenishing his oxygen. He had enough trace elements and nitrogen to last for a century. Even then, if he ran low with the right resources, the creation engine in his chest could produce more. Even if he shut down, his last purboy could go and get him resources. Another machine was smashed. He stood at the edge of the psychic intelligence suppression field and stared at the blade of his chainsaw. He thumbed the power stud and watched the density collapse teeth rattle across the blade into the engine housing and back out. He could be in there, but not machines. He thought, concentrated, there had to be a reason. 
He was 98% machine in his disaster heavy combat frame. The poor boy was 90% machine. They were allowed. Machines weren't. There had to be a real reason. He knew if he moved away from the edge of the field, he might be able to see it. The R-boy was hovering on the edge of activating if he took one more step towards the strategic intelligence housing. He took a single step away to step over a line he had scratched in his armor. Intellect came flooding back. Daxon, my name is Daxon, rushed through his mind. He blinked several times as more and more of his intellect came flowing back. Daxon looked at his chainsword, an ancient weapon he'd carried with him, a small part of his nearly forgotten past. I just wanted left alone, he thought to himself, turning slowly and staring at a line that he'd scraped in the armor. He couldn't get any closer without large sections of his intellect shutting down. Further down, he saw another line he'd barely managed to scroll down. That was when the Arboy leapt out of his reptilian complex and took over, getting him immediately to safety. Daxon reached out for Fido's petting nerve and felt the trickle of annoyance that the loyal good boy wasn't there any longer. There's gotta be a way to reach it, Daxon thought to himself, mentally worrying a nerve that had long since been lost. It's a mantid ship, not a mantid design ship built by automated factories, but one constructed by mantids directly, complete with even crew quarters. The field is obviously there to stop anyone from reaching the SIH. Daxon thought about it for a long moment. The mantids would have left themselves a way to get inside, specifically the green technical ones. But how to get in... He leaned against the wall as another machine was crushed and dropped down the chute. The SIH was getting more impatient. There was two in as many hours. Daxon thought back, racking his brain. The mantid war had been a long time ago. The blotting of Terrasol and a shock sneak attack. Destroy the Queen. Win the war. Daxon thought to himself, reflexively checking his nutrient and oxygen levels. The fierce fighting after that shock, where Terrans descended upon the mantid worlds like an armored scourge, charging the trance beacon, teleporting to sand-covered worlds the mantids preferred, fighting his way through clad in black armor, through the hive world, shooting and ripping and tearing through the mantids, who'd been nicknamed ants, driven by a hive mind that subsumed any individuality. They had no sense of self, no personality, or personal identity, each one driven forward by the will of the queens. Sleek, black armor designed for fighting the Regalian Saurians had been replaced by heavy plates of the Imperium. The sleek lasers replaced by mass reactor bolters, heavy flamers, and chainsaws. Charging the beacon, translating from one instantaneous forever to the planet's surface, being surrounded by ants, ants everywhere, ripping his weapon free of its scabbard, the roaring density collapsed, Neutronian saw blade tearing through the ant structures as the bolter came free, and he triggered it in the faces of the sand-colored warriors, roaring in rage and hatred as... The chainsaw rumbled as he reflexively thumbed the trigger. The rattling growl of the chainsaw brought him back to the present, out of the cyber-stimulus memory. That 
was the key. He just had to figure out how. There was nothing in the universe that could not be solved with the proper application of logic, creativity, and brute force. All right, it's an intellect suppression field. It works on robots. It works on me. But the ants would have wanted to reach the ship's AI to do repairs or updates. The precursor robot thinks like ants. So that would mean that there has to be at least one ant who can reach a... Daxon stopped and looked at his chainsword. That's it? The Goliath tried another robot, this one with a completely autonomous AI package. It vanished into a black area, and the Goliath waited. Finally, after forever, something came into the strategic intelligence housing, moved around, and left. His scanner showed it was green, four legs, four arms, and tools in its hands. The Goliath wasn't worried. That was a hard-coded authorization. Mew, mew, kitty, kitty, hunt, hunt, find, find. Daxon knelt down and the poor boy jumped onto his leg, melting into the cargo slot in his thigh. He connected and Daxon closed his eyes and rewound the poor boy's memories. It was simple, basic, straightforward. A clone chunk of neural tissue from a species eradicated from the universe, except for clones. That memory made Daxon growl and grit his non-existent teeth. They can forgive the ants for what they did, but I will never forgive them for that. For what we lost when they glassed Earth. Daxon snarled to himself. The only two good things to come off that wretched dirt ball. Daxon's memory of Earth flooded up. Hive cities, thick poisoned atmosphere, barren seas full of rotting kelp. Humanity jammed together in a handful of masked megaplexes in an attempt to reverse the ecological damage of the attempts to repair the ecosystem during the previous century. The rest of the world rotting away as bioengineered plants mutated and ran amok, slowly covering the megaplexes with ivy that crept and choked and strangled and killed and... Daxon physically jerked, going back to the poor boy's memories. It had reached the SIH easily, moving through it and returning. But the images were different than the precursor dead that he had seen before. Daxon had stood inside the wreckage of the Harvester-class precursor before, stared at the broken and ruined strategic intelligence array, at the supercomputers that had been destroyed by security charge that always scrapped the computers and databases that prevented them from falling into enemy hands. This array was different, much different. Daxon blinked, returning to reality, leaving the poor boy's memories. He'd known the Goliath was old, but he would never have expected it to be that old, that it would be old enough for that. Daxon knew how to get it. His rage and hatred wouldn't let him do anything less. If he didn't get it, it would eventually return, and then it wouldn't leave the others alone. That's all he ever wanted, since he'd been a ganger in the lower levels of the ecologies, since he'd scrapped and scrapped and fought for every last calorie. He just wanted left alone. He loaded a template into his creation engine in his chest and waited. It didn't take long to make a standard charge, small enough to be easily moved, but large enough to do what needed to be done. 
He extruded the purboy again, touching it, giving it instructions, and watched as it changed form, changed color, picked up the implosion, charged, and streamed away. Waiting took forever, but waiting forever was something that Daxon had long ago gotten used to, just holding still, waiting, letting time slowly move by. When you had been alive as long as Daxon, an hour was a mere eye blink. The poor boy almost flew down the corridor to him, climbing his leg and oozing into the specifically designed slot, leaving behind the specially designed frame. Daxon turned and ran for the limit, pushing his legs, pounding through the corridor. He activated his chainsaw, swiping a robot a quarter of his size into four parts with a long-practiced and long-used pattern, turning the chainsaw off and slapping it onto his hip so the magnetic scabbard system could take effect. Past the five-mile mark, sprinting for the exit, bore his ship. The Goliath suddenly could feel the feral exit the blank spot, running, fleeing down a tight maintenance tunnel. The Goliath snarled, feeling the equivalent of anger roar up. The feral had wasted precious time, consumed precious resources, delayed the Goliath's plan to eliminate the other Goliaths around its home system to add their resources to its own. It ordered every bot, from maintenance to observation to combat, to stream towards the peril, to find it, smash it, and kill it, and drag the corpse to one of the surgical laboratories and rip it apart. Daxon ran, keeping the narrow maintenance hallways despite adding an additional three miles to his trip. He kept moving, using his superior tech, superior armor, and battle screens that should have been mounted on a light tank rather than a full conversion cyborg to bull rush the machines out of his way. His shoulder cannons fired, ripping apart machines. The lasers howled as it sliced apart machines. The magak heavy pistol in his hand bellowed, and the chainsaw roared as it hacked everything in his path. He got lost. Hacking at ants, at Regellian Saurians, at combined troops who intended on destroying every last cyborg now that the war was over, at the digital sentience piloted craft, at the Imperium troops, at the heretics, at the Trianonad, at the Sokio police, at the gangers. It didn't matter what they were, what they called themselves, that they were only in his memories, and all long dead. The machines that the SIA sent after him fell to rage that knew no bounds, that had no limit. Daxon roared through his speakers loud enough that it shook the armored walls around him, that the SIA could track him based on the vibrations. Every machine that tried to engage him found itself ripped apart by cannon fire, lasers, or a roaring ripping chainsaw wielded in the hands opposite 20 millimeter Magak autocannon. The Goliath ground its electronic teeth in anger, sending everything it had, ordering machines to tear through walls if they had to, but to kill the feral thing. Daxon reached the passage, reached where he had left the stealth airlock, climbing into it, up into his ship, firing through the open airlock and shattering the forward section of the machine that looked up into the airlock. 
density collapsed neutronium-tipped shredding armor before the flecks of antimatter exploded. It fell, streaming vaporized metal, sparks crackling from a shattered circuitry. Daxon didn't bother to button up the airlock, just brought his ship online, bypassing the computer's welcome and bringing it up out of the crater and swinging it around and punching the engines. The Goliath began throwing missiles at the tiny mite that it itched and stung and bit it for so long. The craft corkscrewed up, dropping chaff, dazzlers, flares and two decoys. In his brain, Daxon saw the counter reach zero. In the strategic intelligence array housing, that isotope decayed far enough and was no longer able to hold apart the mechanical relay. The relay clicked shut and the basic mechanical device went into action. Daxon had been in a deep fugue state when he'd loaded the template, difficulty distinguishing past from present, and the creation engine had simply built it according to the template, built the poor boy a new frame. The charge was a standard implosion charge that needed the application of power. The trigger was nothing fancy, although it would not be recognizable to most people who saw it. A pressure pincher made of cellulose with a steel pressure clip that snapped close when the isotope ran out. Two wires connecting the basic battery that was designed as a rectangle then a black base and a thin copper-colored top marked with Duracell on it. It activated the pressurized gas container, which started to fill the Mylar balloon. The power hit the charge, and the small, for explosives, charge went off, destroying what had made Daxon go half mad. The interior of the Goliath gutted itself when the self-destruct went off. Leaning back in his cockpit, Daxon watched the massive engines of the Goliath go dead, watched the Goliath start to tumble. The Goliath's shields went down seconds before Daxon whipped through the space. His astrogation program was running hard, finding out where the Goliath had panic hell jumped to. The computer trickled him to let him know that he completed autolocation and then started churning the mathematics needed for the jump. Daxon switched its ship's memory calls for the VIs to read only, freezing them in mid-thought, and gripped the controls. The computer beeped and Daxon hit the button, slamming the right cruiser into hyperspace, into the upper bands. It would take him a week to get where he was going, either in the upper bands, which tore apart VIs and AIs. He leaned back and set his controls on automatic, and told the ship's low-end VI that could survive this high into the hyperspace to awaken him if anything happened, and activated his dream generator. He had not slept in ages, had bypassed sleeping, running cyberware to keep himself running. His body, that he no longer had, felt tired. Sleep came quickly, and Daxon began to dream, riding the upper bands of hyperspace. Daxon looked down at his daughter, Tania, and smiled. She was hugging him tightly, even as she cried. Do you have to go, Daddy? she asked. Daxon rested a heavy hand, scarred from too many fights when he was younger, on her head. Yes, he half lied. He'd volunteered, but that was part of it. The next part was the truth. It's this uniform that paid for your schooling, little one. She looked up and smiled, her green eyes sparkling. I'll make you proud, Daddy. New nanites are working, repairing the damage to the plants. Now I'm going to get an old DC to be a part of the team to remove the carnivorous plants. 
Daxon smiled down at her. You'll do good, better than me, better than your mother. You'll change the world for the better. The whistle sounded and Tania let him go, hurrying down the concourse to the waiting shuttle that would take her to the ship, which would take her to Old Earth, where she would help get the ecology back under control, making the planet livable again. Daxon watched her go, till she vanished with a wave that she returned with a cybernetic arm, then picked up his ditty bag. He headed for the combined battle cruiser that he'd been assigned to. The Malakus colonies were pushing back against the combined, and it was time to show them who was in charge. Daxon didn't mind. The Malakus were a part of the Biomod League, and they'd been pushing their genetic supremacy a little too hard lately, stating that people were born into proper place. It wasn't until the Combine ship had reached Malakus that they heard what had happened while they'd been in transit. The Mantids had attacked, had glassed parts of Earth, were broadcasting it through the tattered and damaged soul net, were sending it throughout the Terran space via psychic waves. Major Daxon Preborn, Combine Armored Infantry, reached forward, his flesh and blood hands shaking, and touched the data screen. He punched in the name, feeling his stomach clench. Preborn Tania L, University of Mars, Planetary Recovery Team, Old DC, searching, searching, searching. Confirmed dead. Daxon just stood there, staring at the name. One of the few good things in the universe blotted away. His men led him away, their words forgotten. All he could hear was his own voice. You'll do better than me. In his sleep, Daxon was racked by memories, each one painful and jagged, but his. Reminding him of one single thing he just wanted left alone. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind, Part 73, Nectar Tie. Nectar Tie held tight on Major Cartwright's arm as the shuttle shuddered going through the storm clouds. She kept her eyes squeezed shut, attuned to every vibration of the frame, every change of the pitch from the engines, the booming of atmosphere superheated by the passage of gigawatts of electricity, expanding them collapsing. She could smell the humans around her. None of them had the slightest bit of concern as the shuttle vibrated, in response to narrowly being missed by enough electricity to power a city superheating the air which cooled instantly and collapsed back into itself, causing a sonic clap that she knew could probably be heard miles away. Worse yet that this was apparently allowed by the weather-controlling mechanism around the planet— she still remembered how beautiful the planet was from orbit, though. The shuttle plunged through the clouds and into the grey air that was filled with precipitation. Mommy, a rainbow! An immature human female squealed out, Mommy, look, look! Without meaning to, Nectati turned to look out the window to see what the child was speaking about and stared. Hatric of Terrasol's energetic yellow star. The atmosphere, the drops of liquid H2O that had formed around microscopic dust or ice particles, all combined to throw a rippling, pulsating arc of prismatic light through the grey sky. 
She gasped, her eyes able to see additional colors than humans. She was mesmerized by it as it rippled. An amount of colors had shimmered the way that it seemed to sweep along with the shuttle. The scientific part of her mind just told her that it was atmospheric projection of prismatic light generated by near-white light going through drops of water. But that part of her still wondered at watching it. Electricity flecked through the clouds, massive bolts, blue in color with white edges, streaming from different clouds to connect them to the jump to the ground. She gasped, her fear forgotten by the sight. Even the sonic rumble that shook the shuttle didn't bother her as she watched the lightning flicker in the clouds. The magnetic field so strong it creates opposing charges between the atmosphere and the ground. Nictati remembered from her briefing, a wild and savage planet. The being she held onto, Major Carnite, was the product of this crazed ecosystem and maddened planet, yet every time she was distressed he would hold her, applying the correct pressure so that her distress would lessen. In many ways he reminded Nectatai of the planet that she was heading towards, the surface of dangerous, powerful enough to tear her apart with no effort, but comforting and solid, easing her distress with the very bulk and power that could kill. There was a ping in her heart, the updated one fresh enough that it still itched slightly, the skin around it still slightly pink. The shuttle was about to land. The new data link implant wasn't the only thing. The inside of her thigh still itched where the humans had put a bio-cleanser into her leg. It was attached to the main artery, able to filter out anything from prions to almost visible to the eye debris. Designed to break down anything foreign into base proteins to allow her organs to process the remains. The simple device that she watched the complex 3D printer creation engine in the medical bay print out. That her own medical officer had stared at the template and how it worked, crunching and unclenching her hands in fury. It's so simple. It's math. The tech, it's right and the obvious to anyone. Imagine how many lives a blood cleanser implant would save every year, she said. I could have built this. Anyone could have built this if we'd just been allowed to think of it. There was a sudden deacceleration that made both of her stomachs drop and her toes and pulled her from her memory. The immature female human went wee and threw her hands into the air. Nectati managed not to throw up, even though she turned and grabbed Major Carnite's arm with all four hands. The shuttle landed with a bump. It settled deeply, then lifted slightly, making both of her stomachs bubble in her abdomen. She held on to Major Carnite as the other humans got to their feet and slowly left the shuttle. Daddy, a small, immature human female, still as small enough to the mother held it close to her body, blurted out, Reaching for Nectati, her little hand still strong-looking, open and closed. When the small human started crying as if her heart would break. She thought you were a stuffy, Major Carnite said. I hope that didn't offend you. That made Nectati giggle, covering her mouth with one of her catching hands. No, no it doesn't. More humans walked past, some glancing, some staring at something provided by their implants, but only they could see. Others obviously focused on the task that they needed to complete. Nectati watched them all leave until finally they were the only ones left. Are you ready? Despite the personal space, it's going to be a bit crowded, Major Carnite told her. 
Nectati nodded. She held onto the mage's thick arm as they left the shuttle, walking down to the connecting tube and into the concourse. Staring around her, Nectati gasped. While her own species was used to crowding, bumping and touching each other, what she saw amazed her. Humans moving together in streams, pooling near eateries where luggage came out on anti-grav conveyors, or just, uh, to Nectati's eye, random spots in the massive concourse. She held tight to him as they went down two sets of moving stairs, got a lift cart and moved to the luggage conveyor. As they stood there, an elderly human woman, the hair on her head grey, her face lined and wrinkled, looked up at Major Carnite. Do you have family with the sleeping ones, Major? The old woman asked. Yes, ma'am, but that's not why I'm here, Major Carnite answered. Oh, is it to show your guest around? The woman nodded to Nectati. Yes, ma'am, it is, Carnite answered. The old woman reached forward, grabbing the trundle, its own levitation system kicking in as soon as it left the conveyor. She licked at Major Carnite and nodded. Carry on, Major, and fight the 13th, she said. Major Carnite joked slightly, looking like the old woman, and began to move away. Old blood, ma'am. Nectati looked up at surprised expression on the Major's face. What? It's easy to forget the people who've chosen to age have lived a long life, he said, shaking his head. Just preconceptions from being effectively immortal. Nectati clenched a jaw at that. The humans had apparently fought and, for the most part, defeated death. The suds at the base of their skull kept a constant recording of their mental engrams, thought patterns, and molecular map of their neural tissue. It was even backed up by some quantum entanglement with the master suds arrays, or over human space. Even if their body was completely destroyed, their mastery cloning technology let them grow new body identical to the old one, or to specification. Apparently, humans were capable of living centuries before they started suffering mental engrams, and with software, firmware, and wetware advanced, the lifespan of a being pushed forward all the time. Apparently, before that, they had managed to achieve immortality through removing the brain and keeping it under constant repair through nanite-infused nitrogel with cybernetic implants to fool the brain into thinking that there was a body there. Those were, as far as Major Carnite told her, mostly gone, slowly succumbing to the inevitable decay. She felt a surge of jealousy. The humans had evolved after a life extinction event. The fourth or fifth their planet had suffered, clawed their way to supremacy on a resource-poor world, and had achieved what was basically immortality without anyone's help had beaten the resource problem, becoming a society where time and imagination and personal effort was worth more than any mere chunk of elemental ore or isotopes. She squeezed Major Carnite's arms together, closing her eyes and doing her best to push away her jealousy. If my people hadn't been found by the Lankalans, by the overseers, what would we have accomplished? What greatness could we have discovered? She thought to herself, their help was little more than slave chains to keep us bound to the machines. Finally, their luggage showed up. Well, the small tote that she was carrying. The Major didn't seem to need one, but had suggested that Nectati carry any mementos that she felt like carrying. Nectati had chosen to take a blanket, a comfort gripper, and a couple changes of clothing. They all fit in small tote, which with the big human picked up. 
They stopped by a few shops on the way so Nectati could purchase a few gifts and mementos of coming here. It was in one shop that she stopped, looking at the transparent brick of some kind of material. It was an image of a human slightly curled up inside. It was marked, sleeping one on the shelf. She looked up at Major Carnwright, who was waiting for her to finish shopping. What is this? she asked. Major Carnwright looked at the block and sighed. It's for you to buy to remember family members from long time ago, the Major said. Nectati could hear the slight pain in his voice. Do you have one? she asked. He nodded slowly. A maternal line relative, many times great mother, he said. He looked away at the side of the store. Nectati noticed the muscles on his jaw were clenched and dropped the line of inquiry. They walked out of the concourse, out of the covered wall. There was a grey limousine waiting for them, which the two armed guards in military uniform standing beside the vehicle. There was a heavy, blocky vehicle in front of the limousine and two more behind it. All three had mounted guns on them, with an armoured soldier standing out of the vehicle with one hand on a weapon. She was startled by the sheer obviousness of the military vehicles, of the display of willingness to use armed force. Yes, the overseers kept vehicles around that were often armed, in order to suppress riots and other disturbances. But the weapons were usually hidden, unless it was under immediate need for them. This way, ma'am, one of the two uniformed men said, the other opening the door. She started to step forward when Major Carnite put his hand on her grasping hand and held tight to his arm with... Did you check your implant? Carnite asked. Oh! She looked at them and touched the muscles that she'd learned to use. Both of the men suddenly had boxes around their faces, then blocks around their bodies, arms, legs, hands, feet. Another box appeared, showing what was obviously an official picture. Then the names and ranks of the two men were verified under the box... The vehicle was boxed, and then another image of it, and verified below the box. You are important. Always check your implants before getting in a vehicle with strangers, Major Carnite said. Nectati felt her ears flatten in embarrassment. I forgot. The limousine was warm and comfortable when she got in, turned to a temperature and humidity that reminded her of her home planet. Both in the military personnel got into the vehicle the last one shutting the door, and sat opposite her, staring above her head in a neutral expression on their face. If there's any problem, let me know and I'll adjust the controls, Major Carnite said. I'll teach you later how to do it in your implant. Thank you, Nectati said, leaning over and resting her head against the big human's side, holding onto one of his arms with all four hands. He was warm and solid and comforting. The ride was silent, the rain hissing on the car, which moved with just barely a suggestion of motion. Eventually, it stopped, and Nectati regretfully let go of who she was beginning to think was her human. Outside the car, in the underground parking lot, there were two massive bipedal constructs made of black metal that looked as if they should be glossy from the way that they drank in the light, something called war steel. That was apparently the main form of human armor. We have to take the heavy lift, but it should be all right, Major Carnite told her. It's still decently done. It's not like we're moving you up to a freight elevator. Nectati nodded, holding tight to her gripping stick with her grasping hands, one catching hand holding a small bag with I Heart Terror printed on the rainbow colors. 
The other, catching hand, she held tight on her human. They escorted her to the heavy elevator, and then out into the waiting room that had three smaller elevator access doors, as well as an entrance to the big elevator. If there's a fire, terrorist attack, earthquake, or military attack, the box right here holds a grav bolts. You just jump out the window, and it'll lower you to the ground safely, Major Carnite said, pointing to the red box where it had emergency written on it. It'll be a fast descent, but it'll slow you quickly thanks to the Icarus landing system. All you have to do is buckle up and jump. It'll detect the rapid drop. It'll also bring up a protective shield. Thank you, Nectati said, nodding. She felt a rush of relief. Doors open, and she stared. The room was a palace, sweeping and curved architecture, an upright keyboard musical instrument, couches, climbing bars, some kind of exercise equipment. She could see that there were clear sliding doors leading out to the rain-swept patio, with a pool that seemed to extend itself to the end of the building and into nothingness. Nectati stared around her as Major Carnite walked her in. He pointed out the kitchen, how there was refrigerated food as well as food dispensers, how there were three different toilet areas, a room where you could sit in the steam or heat, two more lounging rooms, three bedrooms, a small library, two rooms entirely devoted to enhanced VR. The whole thing seemed like a palace. This is too much. I know I'm to speak with the Terran press, so the people might know of my people and our trials and the precursors. But surely this is a room of someone important, Nectati said, staring at the pool. Captain Nectati, it's a hotel room, an expensive five gold star rated hotel. Hotel ambassador suite, but it is hardly outlandish, Major Carnite said, standing next to her so that she could still hold on to him. Besides, you are an important person to us. Do you think that we would have you sheltering in poverty, in some rude hut, in the sticks and mud? If you would like, there is a primitivism enclave nearby. She looked up at him, staring into these intent human eyes. Anyone can lease these rooms? She asked incredulously. Major Carnite nodded. Yes, if they had the credits, if you just made minor Templar color changes that sold to a handful of interested parties in your old EVR, you could make the money to rent this in a few weeks. If you had a couple thousand people download your template, you could make the money to stay in this room in a single day. Nectati shook her head. It's so lavish, takes up so much space. She pointed at the bars. This is done for me, so I can climb and work off stress. This must have been expensive. He shrugged. It's just steel and probably a half an hour to work in the template CAD program. Someone was paid for the time and effort, but beyond that, he shrugged. It's just steel and plastic, easy enough for the 3D printers to run off. She had heard humans refer to their culture as post-scarcity, and had wondered exactly what that had meant. Resources were scarce throughout the universe. That had been mathematically proven aeons ago. She had learned the formula in school. There were only so many planets in the green zone and amber zone, meaning that even living in space was limited, eventually to be completely filled. The humans obviously didn't believe that, and lived as if the only thing of value was thought, effort, time, and labor. Her mind wheeled as she realized her entire existence had been allied to, forced to live packed together in a mass of complexes, only allowed a small allotment of time each week to visit carefully curated nature preserves, forced to eat nutri-gel.
Major Carnite felt her start to tremble before his implant alerted him that Captain Nectati's distress levels were rising into amber. He knelt down, gathered her in his arms, and squeezed her gently. She trembled in distress for nearly five minutes. Finally, her hyperventilating slowed. The trembling ceased, and the tears stopped. How many humans are here? She asked softly as he stood up. She held her gripping stick in three hands, his wrist in the other one. Over a trillion, without counting the artificial sapiens, the clone worlds, and a few other special cases, he shrugged. The galaxy's a big place. We're spread out around a lot. There's plenty of room for everyone. Our people are told that that is not true, that planets must be carefully shepherded to prevent future generations from suffering, Nectati said. Any planet with life on it must be shepherded. He nodded. True, but there is still plenty of room. The Manted and Trainer Ard, they like warm, dry, dusty worlds. The Manted like high oxygen. The Trainer Ard like nitrogen. The Religalians like their cool, silicate sand worlds, preferably with a red sun. We all like different planets. Sure, humans can terraform and live on a planet unaltered, but we try to get along with our brothers. He chuckled, pointing out at the world beyond. If it comes to terraforming, we can do it. This whole place was glassed, and we fixed that. They made a mind whirl again. Her colony, her beautiful colony, had been glassed by a precursor machine. You could fix my colony? She asked softly. He nodded. It can take a couple hundred years, but we can restore just about everything with a handful of Alvin queens. Lightning flickered off in the clouds as she realized that it wasn't something that the humans couldn't stop, that they'd repaired their planet and chosen to have the lightning remain. She moved over and sat on the couch, holding her gripping stick. Would you like to watch a vid? Major Carnite asked. She nodded and he picked up a remote, powered it on and tossed it to her. A perfect throw she caught easily. Go ahead, channel crews. I'll check in, see what's going on the agenda. Major Carnite said. He looked at the two big black bipeds. You guys keep an eye on Captain Nectati. Ping me if she starts showing distress. Affirmative, both said. She glanced over and saw their eyes were bright cobalt blue. The channels were a dizzying blur. She had grown up with three channels. The channels were overseer's lectures on rules, laws, and reasons behind them. The news channel had a children's education channel. Here yeah, there were entertainment channels, some of them for the Manted and Trainerad. She stopped which watch one, which was apparently some comedy revolving around the six Trainerad acquaintances and the troubles in their lives, set in some place called New York City, often the things that brought laughter from the invisible people. She didn't understand much of it. It looked silly to her. She switched channels and saw a historical document about the exploration of Dark Matter Sea that had taken nearly a thousand years of research. How, even though Dark Matter was invisible, the Terrans had discovered that somehow large patches of Dark Matter had entire solar systems hidden inside. The education she had possessed had taught her that Dark Matter was essentially useless, just a proto-matter left over from the formation of the universe. That channel hurt her head, since her implant kept offering, helpfully, to show her the math that they were discussing as if there was a child in school. Although the idea of creating huge synthetic bodies shaped like a cephalopod and transforming one's mind into it seemed a bit, well, insane to Nectati. 
Another channel had a show involving poorly drawn animated characters running around and getting into trouble. It was a lot of silly physical comedy. For some reason, it made her laugh. After a while, Major Carnite came back and let her hold his arm and leg. He was mostly silent, just answering a few questions about the shows. She ate dinner, watching a trivid, marveling over it. She found out that the humans enjoyed being frightened and watched intensely violent and gory movies called Slasher Fix, as well as frightening movies about supernatural beings called Horror Movies. The action movies were almost as frightening to her as the slasher flicks. Morosa, when she found out that one wasn't a fictional show but a documentary. Eventually, she chose her bedroom and went to bed. Sleep came quickly, exhaustion at her day catching up with her. She got up in the middle of the night. It was dark, and when her implant asked if she wanted to wake up Major Carnite, she told it to let him sleep. She used the toilet and went back to the trivid, keeping the volume low. The two giant bipeds, larger than even Carnite, watched her with softly glowing blue eyes as she flipped through the dizzying array of channels. She saw some advertisements and queried her implant. What she saw made her start to shake, hugging herself in horror. The mantid had attacked Earth. Billions had died, but they had been connected through data links. They had cried out, screamed as they died, reaching out to one another. Some called out in horror, some in pain, some crying out for vengeance. But they had reached out to one another. It had shattered the soul net where the primitive suns had gone to. They had reached out across the soul net, the EVR constructs that connected them all, so their entire world was augmented reality. 3.2 billion had died, and the other 2 billion on Earth, on the moon, Luna had felt it. It had sent nearly a billion of them into shock, made them catatonic. Still alive, still screaming, still engulfed in horror. But the humans could not bring themselves to terminate their lives, could not bring themselves to let them die, nor could they wake them. Instead, the humans put them in some kind of dreamless stasis, where they would not age. A technology from their original slow ship colony vessel. A billion humans locked into a dreamless stasis. They were the sleeping ones. Major Carnite woke up with his implant ringing an alarm. He jumped up, rushing out to where Nictiti was curled up, shuddering behind a potted plant, holding herself tightly and crying. He held her tightly until she calmed down, only a few moments before he would have called the medics. End of chapter First Contact Rewind Chapter 74 Top Secret Norfolkon Nozinicon Sigma Blue Lima 50 Convid Kateshikaan was a unified outer rim system, halfway between the Great Gulf and the United Inner Systems, firmly unified outer rim. It was an agricultural system with moderate resources and extraction. Three planets firmly in the green zone, providing food for nearly 200 systems. The gas giant, refineries, and the asteroid extraction and smelting facilities provided raw materials to the great factory worlds of the inner systems. For 2,000 years, the Lima, who evolved in the middle planet of the green zone, had been pacified. The birthright had been controlled through genetic engineering. 
Their numbers diminished to a sustainable level so that after their system resources were collected, the species would survive according to the Unified Science Council. The Lanactalan had ensured that the species would be a net contributor to the galactic system rather than a net consumer and for 2,000 years had carefully nurtured the system so that they could harvest the fruit of the largess of the system. Then the precursors had come. The Lanactalan had fled the system or entered shelters to protect them until the precursors' machines left. Even worse, the humans had arrived right after. The Lanactalan had watched from their shelters and from their ships as the Terrans arrived, clashed with the precursors with a fleet that kept arriving during the battle, getting larger and larger as time went by, and refused to withdraw even after taking more than 10% casualties. Finally, the Terrans drove out the precursors and began landing on the planet. Massive dropships that disgorged robotic robots, Terrans in their heavy armor, tanks, artillery, air defense, and many other craft and personnel. Eustalette was a Hakanaean, one of the small people who had managed to evolve in the middle planet of the three in the green zone. He had been raised to care for the overseer's gardens outside their luxury apartments. When he was done tending the garden, he received his rations for the day and was allowed to return to his burrows that the overseers allowed them. He had watched the overseers enter the shelter, stood there in the garden and watched the doors close and the tube had retracted into the ground with a hum. For a long time he didn't know what to do, so he went through the manor and cared for the plants. When the darkness came, he went back to his burrow, where he heard others repeating the same thing. Many were worried. No ration coupons had been given out, and the dispensers would not give any food without the coupons. Usulet and his warren mates had huddled together, worrying about the lack of food. The next day, the houses were still empty. Eustalet wandered around, caring for the plants, then went and stood in the front of the computer terminal that was supposed to give him the ration coupon. It was dark, silent, even when he risked touching it a few times. He and the rest of his warren mates went to bed hungry. The next morning, Eustalet had been walking to his place of employment. The shuttles had shut down, just sitting there in the street, when he spotted something new. A group of Hanakanean females, all walking down the street, holding infants, leading children, looking around with wide eyes. Ustlet had run forward, stopping and looking at the females. She had stared at him, fascinated by the way he looked. She was a house servant by the name of Eleft. She and other female house servants had been crying and investigated. They found an infant and child Hanakaneans in a building and had rescued them. Then they had started walking, looking for if anyone had food. In desperation, Ustalet had opened the overseer food box, handing out the food to the females. He waited for an overseer to rush up and chastise him, maybe even hurt him for opening the box, but nothing happened. That night, many of the Hanakaneans did not return to the warrens. Instead, they sat out in the green places, where there were trees, bushes, plants, and pools of water, and watched the bright flashes in the sky. They oohed and hard at the flashes and streaks and the patterns in the sky. The next morning, they began to leave the cities, streaming out into the fields and farms and great sculpted parks. They ate what they could, drank from there they could, as they left the cities. Ustlet stayed in the city, 
He painted arrows to where the food plants were, to where the water was, and wandered the empty streets. In his travels, he found a display screen. On it, he managed to puzzle out the meaning of the pictures. The pictures were asking if he needed help, if any of the Hanukkahnaeans needed help. He pressed the icon that he needed help. The icon asked if someone could come in and help him. Looking around the empty street, where a letter was blowing around despite his attempts to pick it up, he wondered why someone would ask that. He pressed yes and forgot about it. Two more days searching the city, during the day and watching the flashes in the sky at night, and he met a creature. It was big, black, made of some kind of metal that was dark and almost hurt his eyes. It seemed as if it should gleam, but did not. It was a biped like him, only it stood straight up with a huge compared to him. It had glowing blue eyes. It knelt down and, using an overseer speech, asked if he needed help. Ustalit answered that he was looking for the lost females and immature Hanukkahnaeans. The big one promised to help and then began to follow him around the city. Ustalit saw other bipeds, some as big as the one that followed him, and with thudding footsteps and the faint sound of humming. Others smaller but harder to see, as their clothing was blurring into the background. Twice he encountered females holding children being loaded into vehicles. He worried until he was allowed to accompany the vehicle. The vehicle, driven by two smaller bipeds, took the females and the little ones to farms outside the city. There he saw the smaller bipeds, with the larger ones standing around, handing out food, blankets, waters, toys, and in some cases even helping out by giving females and little ones medical care. Ustlet went back to the city, helping to search. On the first night, the flashes began a crescendo and then slowly stopped right before dawn. That day, he still searched, eating when he could, drinking for the stale, tepid water he found it, but found nobody. He headed towards where the ships came in from the sky and looked around. He had always been curious about it, but had never been allowed near it. There was no overseers to chase him away. He sat on some boxes and stared at the wondrous things. He slept inside a mass transit vehicle, for overseer not the Hanukkahnaeans. They got up to wander the massive building. He found abandoned luggage, rotten food, and a litter scattered everywhere. A roar got his attention, and he ran to the window to see what it was, his natural curiosity getting the better of him. Ships started landing. Overseers began to return, tubes of metal raised up from the ground and doors opening. The overseers came out. Tubes rose again and again, more and more overseers coming out. He ran out to the big black biped, whose eyes were still glowing blue, standing next to it, and watching as the tubes came up, the overseers exited the tubes. They left you here to die, the big black biped rumbled in overspeech. They went away, Ustalit replied, half agreeing. Ustalit saw his own overseer and the family leave a tube. The female trotted over, reaching down and grabbing Ustalit's ear. Why are you not tending my garden, slave? Madam Overseer harumphed. You will be Dr. Ration Coupons and every wilted leaf. Release him, the big biped ordered, stepping between them. The Madam Overseer gave the blubbering exhale of shock, glopping backwards. She motioned to the nearby security and social police. Four of them came trotting over, three holding sting sticks, the fourth holding a thing that Ustlet had never seen. This... This, this creature interfered with my discipline of my slave. 
Madam, Overseer, Harumph, teach it a lesson. The system is under Terran Confederacy martial law. The biped said, the words vibrating a slit's fur. Kneel down and put your gripping hands behind your head. The socio-police overseer stated, galloping nervously around the big figure. I'll be prepared to be negatively stimulated. An assault upon one is an assault upon all. The big biped rumbled. There is no need for violence. The overseer jabbed the biped with the sting sticks. Eustolet closed his eyes, not wanting to see the big biped fall down and foam at the mouth. He wished he didn't have to hear the scream. This is a violation of Terran Confederacy martial law status, biped rumbled. Eustolet heard the sting sticks go off. You are assaulting a member of the Confederate Marine Corps, a duly recognized and bonded authority during the period of martial law. The biped said. Ustalit opened his eyes just as the social police overseer with the strange thing lifted a long object to his shoulder and pointed it at the big black biped. More overseer social police had shown up. Ustalit couldn't even see the law second corpse surrounding the biped. They had moved away from Ustalit, who was now forgotten. Do not, the biped started. The long thing the overseer was holding gave a loud crack and a line connected the biped with the object for an eye-watering second. The biped still stood there, a light smear on his chest. First violation, transmitting to command and jag, it stated. Several of the social police and lawsec drew their weapons. Erstlet had seen the social police and corpsec use those weapons to kill unlucky Hakkaneans, who had been accused of violations of the social order policy. He winced and watched, as he forced himself to watch the executions. But more bipeds were showing up, only to be immediately surrounded by overseers with weapons drawn. This area is under Confederate law. Set down your weapons and raise your hands, one of the smaller bipeds stated. Ustalit saw that he had a sword in a sheath on his hip that is no longer than Ustalit was tall. One of the lawsecs sneered and spit a cut on the ground at the biped's feet. This is corporate property. We do not recognize your authority. Another lawsec with a much more ornate sash pointed at the smaller biped. Execute this ball as a lesson to his compatriots. The lawsec turned and fired, hitting the biped in the chest. The biped looked down at the impact point, which had not even marred his strange clothing that had kept changing colors. Second violation. All the bigger ones intoned. Ustlet saw the big black biped's gall go from blue to green. Ports opened on the backs and large tubes rose out of their backs, connecting to their bodies by chains of smaller tubes. You don't want to do this, the smaller biped said. You can still stand down. The lawsack overseer, with all the flashy stuff on his sash, clopped forward, pressed the pistol against the biped's exposed forehead, beneath the short black hair but above the mechanical eyes, and pulled the trigger. The biped's head didn't move, and when the lawsack overseer drew back the smoking pistol, all that showed was a purple mark on the faded red and vanished between one breath and the next. Third violation... All the big ones stated. Command and jag justification reached. Their eyes went to amber, the same small biped, all the mechanical eyes turning the color at the same time. Stillet watched as swords were pulled out, not clean-edged metal ones with edges that roared and blurred and rattled. 
The biped had been shot in the head and pulled his out, the blade going from choppy looking into a blurry roar, and swung it at the overseer, hitting the center like a base of the upper torso. Blood sprayed as the sword howled, tissue goblets sprayed out across the street, bone and cartilage was ripped apart, and the sword tore free. The overseer didn't even scream, just fell in two pieces, its mouth working. All around was lit the biped set to work with swords. The two larger ones turned to face the vehicles, the tubes on their backs suddenly vomiting fire as a loud brrrt sounded, and when they looked like a solid beam of light connected the biped to the lawsec vehicle. The lawsec vehicle suddenly exploded as it ripped lengthwise down the side. Ustlet dove to the ground, covering his head. Loud, thudding footsteps sounded, and the black armored foot was on either side of him. Ustlet looked up as he saw the big black biped rip the madam overseer down the torso with the sword, flesh and blood spraying from the rapidly moving teeth on the edge of the blade. Overseers were screaming, pushing to get away, trampling at each other. Some were shooting around themselves with pistols, forgetting the lawsack and corpsack training as they tried to keep the crowd from knocking them over. A shot hit one of the smaller bipeds. The big one standing over Ustlet turned with the tubes over his shoulder and roared again. Brrrt. The crowd just dissolved as the twin beams of light arced across it. The overseers, those nigh-on guards to Ustlet and his people, exploded into rags of bloody flesh. In a few moments, it was over. The street was cleared of overseers. Are you all right, colonel? One of the smaller ones asked, and the one who had been shot in the head. Yes, drop the marines. I want this place locked down. Eject the Lanark lands. We'll sweep the system, make sure they're all gone, and turn this place over to the natives. Colonel said... He walked over to the huddled Ustlet. I'm not going to hurt you. None of us are, the colonel said. He knelt down, holding out his hand. Ustlet took it carefully and was surprised that he was gently helped to his feet. We are Terran Confederacy, he said. How may we help you? Do not distribute, not for public release. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 75. Dreams. Dreams sat in a contemplative position, staring at an image of a map of various planetary lines in her mind. She could see the four sections of the Unified Civilized Council, the Core Worlds, the Inner Sphere, the Outer Rim, and the Periphery, which was next to the Great Gulf, which the humans called the Long Dark. Tens of thousands of stars, of settled worlds, multiple species ranked civilized, near-civilized, and neo-sapient. Without a single exception, the neo-sapients were species that evolved on a planet after a precursor war and were almost two dozen of them. The near-civilized were a mixture. Only fourteen races, six of them evolved after the war, the others were former food. The last, of course, was the civilized races. Six of them, all of them former food species. Dreams let each race appear in her mind, examining them. She thought, only briefly, only long enough for her implosion wire to tingle, how each one would taste. Afterwards, she rated them according to psychic sensitivity, using her race as one side and the Terrans as the other. 
Even though the Lanark Talans had supposedly recorded every moment in their history, a hundred million years was a long time, and she had to figure out what the exact keywords and search strings she wanted to use. The frustration led her to calling in 117. The smallest lime-green engineer came in, stopped at the door to adjust the track that the door slid open on, moved with a finicky precision. Behind 117 was a human holding a board with a nail in it. 117 flashed a stream of icons and dreams contemplated them for a moment. He was still discontented that a being had entered his quarters and disturbed his and Mosluk in an attempt to kill 117. Dreams soothed 117, reaching out with psychic power as well as soothing words and icons and emojis. Once the small engineer had calmed down, Dreams had informed him that the information that she wanted gleaned from the historical databanks of civilization a hundred million years old. She also called in fights amongst the night, a russet-colored one. When fights arrived, Dreams told the other mandate that she needed from the database. Vites was horrified and intrigued by the idea and sat down, contemplating the idea. Vites had arrived with two escorts, one in white air mobile armor, a red crescent on one side on the chest and a red cross on the other, and the bright green interlocked green horns of a biohazard mark on the other. Vites was a doctor, a very good one. Vites told her escorts where she needed to go and the trio left so that Vites could gather the data. Dreams considered that perhaps a mistake had been made. A terrible mistake. She checked on Mr. Rings, who was sleeping in his bowler, and wiped away the EVR of her favorite thinking spot, putting up data. The six races of the civilized races. She moved around each of them, accepting the implosion wire tingle as she jumped on the back of each of the hard light constructions and cracked open their skulls, or delivered a death strike with one quick, sure movement of her blade arms. Each one was quick, easy, a leap, a stun with psychic attack, disable, and then feed on the dying creature's emotions. With one exception, she could do it, but it was clumsy and unsure. Sitting back down, she and 117 built up a set of constructs, the speaker and a warrior. 117 programmed them and had them run through simulations, move in, paralyze with psychic scream, attack, feast. It was all quick and simple. With the same exception, it wasn't that the exception was particularly tough. A warrior's blade arms would slice clean through the entire body. It was just clumsy. Fights returned and loaded data into the network, sitting with dreams as one once would have set to work. The Nutripaste dispenser had largely set unused. Dreams preferred to take her meals from the stalls aboard the ship. Finally, the Nutripaste was ready. Dreams tasted each one. Three tasted delicious, one acceptable, and one not good, and one greasy and cloying. The datasets had been run according to 117's protocols, which were ready, and fights and dreams examined it. The three delicious races had evolved on sandy, dusty worlds, largely arid. The acceptable one had evolved on a rocky one, the meh one had evolved in a jungle world, and the nasty one had evolved in a temperate world a single proto-continent and a vast roading fields. Fights and dreams looked at one another, cleaning their antenna with anxiety. The datasets were looking off. 
At Flight's suggestion, she ran a near-civilized races that had existed before the war and the data sets. It all evolved on temperate, water-heavy worlds. Again, they tasted weird to both fights and dreams, and harvesting them was clumsy in the recreations. Even the speakers and warriors looked strange. Killing them was simple, but actually feeding off of them didn't look right to either of the two mantids. Watching 117 ran programs in his mind, using CAD software to model it. 117 added another data point without turning dreams or fights, just having it appear in the simulation without even an icon of warning. They watched as 117 simulation ran, separating out species that tasted good from the ones that didn't, the ones that evolved on dusty, arid planets and rocky ones, keeping out the ones that feeding from had a level of elegance, then separating out the dominant species. The implications of 117 clear-cut logic disturbed fights and dreams, both, but more different reasons. To fights, it was obvious, from a medical and biological standpoint. For dreams, it was a horrible realization that explained so much of what was happening. They called in sees and speaks, showing both of the simulations and the data. Speaks watched carefully, nodding along. He could not deny what the evidence showed. There has to be a missing link, Speaks said, staring at the evidence. There's no way to put up a fight tough enough that we built the great war machines to fight them. We breed faster than they do, have dedicated warrior classes that can rip apart without effort, and they're susceptible to our psychic abilities. Maybe something you missed. There was a silence for a long time as five mantid looked at the projections, simulation data, and information. There's no way they could have fought us to a standstill, Speaks said. There was a grinding noise of amusement as all five mantids turned to see Rack and Pinion shaking their heads. The two human warborgs ran the weapons checks, their eyes going from blue to green to amber and red and back through. The five mantids put their heads together, talking quickly. 117's icons flashed almost too fast to read. They added the pure strain human to their computations. It could smash apart every single thing, but the warriors and speakers easily killed them, made it look graceful. The fights were longer, true, since humans fought on even after mortal wounds. Naked and unarmed humans were still killed easily by the warriors and speakers. Adding in a rock and a crudely made fur clothing, and it got harder. The black combine armor and the beam rifles, then the warriors were killed by the hundreds, by the thousands, just to kill a single human. Add in Imperium armor and weapons, and even the speakers could not prevail. 117 added in known weapons and ran it again. At Rack and Pinion's suggestion, they gathered up an entire group of outlier cases and had them armed. It was a deadlock. In large group, the outlier was able to withstand the psychic assault. With a simple duraplast helmet and a simple lining, they were able to withstand the scream of one of their voices. Automatic weapons leveled the playing field. Security armor and combat armor designed by 117 just scanning all the databases, and the fight was hard. The five mantid looked at one another, then at the simulation. The race in question preferred worlds much like the mantid. Oxygen, orange or low-energy yellow sun, stable geology with a single proto-continent, where the outlier preferred rolling plains and mantid preferred the dusty sand. This cannot be right, Dream said softly, staring at the outlier, armed and armored, next to a nude version. Yet, as 117 would say, 
Data does not lie, Speaks replied. Perhaps a missing link, much like we are missing our speakers and warriors in the simulation, Dreams tried again. 117 threw Data up onto the screens. A neural lash preferred by Outlier to control the near-termly unruly, just cracking it would send shockwaves across the psychic wavelength. 117 put up weapons that she had found in the ancient databases, so old that it had taken nearly two hours for the data net to provide it with the files. Their weaponry would hurt across the psychic wavelength. Fights told everyone else, pointing at the discharged corona arc sine wave, breaching warrior and speaker psychic shielding. They're just, uh, just hurt animals, Dreams said. Fights shook her head. Herbivores are dangerous. Ask humans. Humans are still badly injured by herbivores all the time. Herbivores are large, meaty, and thick hide or plates, often horned with sometimes even clawed. They can crush with their weight, bite with strong jaws used for ripping plants from soil, and many other ways of defending themselves. The russet mantid leaned back slightly. Do not confuse herbivore with weak. Moving about chewing the landscape gives them time to contemplate, discuss, and consider. If we look at our outlier, they are well adapted to self-defense. They had a predator at one time, probably a pack animal. Look at how their outlier's eyes are designed. 117 flashed a quick set of icons on the other four mantids nodded. 117 is right. Evolution only keeps what is useful and increases the chances of survival. Those eyes, that body configuration, requires a lot of nutrients to keep running and create. Herd mentality and an abundance of food was necessary for that to evolve without removing the extraneous body parts. Fight said, there was a reason every biological development in the outlier species. Even with 117's help, I have been unable to identify this system and planet of origin. Their records are no help. Their records are no help. They all rose up from roughly two dozen systems, Dream stated. Operation Dandelion Seed, Speak said, referring to the human disaster plan that had been activated when terror had been glassed. Dozens, maybe even as many as hundreds of colony ships had scattered from the human space. Ships of all kinds. Rumors had said that there were massive slow ships still moving through space, heading towards the targeted systems. Ships completely dead and silent except for the shielded computer core and a single zero-point reactor to keep the core alive. Watching silently through the eons as the ship moved through the darkness, waiting to awaken the crew and colonists. That made all five mantids nod. We have always assumed that we move through the enemy's space. What was to prevent him from moving through ours? Speaks asked. What is it to prevent our assumption from being faulty? That got another round of nods. So we have fourteen races that survived the precursor war. Dreams mused, slowly sharpening her blade arms. 117 flashed an icon and Dreams nodded. I stand corrected. Fifteen, counting our race. Our records are largely destroyed between time, our fight from our original systems, our own interceding warfare, and the 1% line, Dream stated. Yet the records are clear. Our enemy during the precursor war was destroyed, Speaks continued. No, they are not clear, Fight said, cleaning her antennae. It is an assumption based on exactly zero evidence beyond our own survival and the fact that no precursor machine came after us. And that is not evidence, Seas stated softly. I cannot see what you do, but I see where our inquiry is leading us. They all turned to the blind seer, waiting.
War. War in a manner of, not of our race, but war in a manner of the wrathful humans. Burning stars, burning worlds, burning beings, all afire, but not mortally wounded. Terror smashes out in rage and hatred with a fierce violence, leaving horrified survivors to stare, shocked at the ashen wreckage of the empire that they had once ruled over. See, said, wringing her hands, the galaxy, the universe, will never be the same. And if I was to delete our simulations and our data as the second dreams are softly, the seer held her for a long moment as if she was statue carved in ivory. She sat on her boat made of fragile leaf, a dragonfly's wing as a paddle, her vestigial wings hummed as she paddled, following the swirl, sliding with the current and paddling into the pool where the current slowed and eddied. She looked around, shading her eyes with the paddle. Silence. All around her was an eerie silence. The banks were covered by wreckage, ruin, ash-covered ruins, bodies still and dead beneath the thick ashfall. There were no suns on the sky, no stars to decorate the inky void. The crushed and wrecked precursor war machine was covered by a thick black ash. There was no wind to stir the dust at the ruin. Nothing. Nothing lived. Nothing moved. Even the stars were gone. Then the rubble began to shift and move. The shoreline bulged in a jet black warborg, its eyes bright red, lifted from the rubble, raising its fists to empty sky and roaring in rage. Blood and screaming bodies poured from its bellowing jaws. Its fists were covered with the remains of shattered worlds, history denied and destroyed pouring from its ruptured worlds. At its feet were dead, small, twisted, bloody, children, broken eggs, pardonings, littlets, mature beings of all types, twisted and dead. Their presence had driven the Terran mad. It smashed about, picking up the precursor war machine and ripping it in half, throwing one away and putting the other half in its bloody jaw, where it crushed it between its jagged war-steel teeth. The warborg picked up the red star, grabbed it with both hands, and tore it in half, blood and screaming being falling from the sundered star. Seas paddled away, fighting against the current, until she reached the calm water of the now, where she slumped, putting her paddle across her forward legs. The others watched seas jerk and twist, twice racked by convulsions. Then she went still, shuddering, her vestigial wings rubbing together softly. Finally, the blind seer lifted her head, her antenna rising. Deleting the data will do no good. The humans will discover circumstances, events, and procedures they cannot abide by and will react with such a violence that the stars will hide their light. The data, as terrible as it may be, is the only way to hold back human rage and hatred. We cannot hide the data. The fate of trillions are held within it, Cease stated. They all leaned back, considering the information... Mr. Rings woke up, climbing around the new ceramic tree that Dreams had purchased him, enjoying the new feel of the larger nest. Speaks watched him move, mesmerized by the fluid way he moved. How bad is it? Dreams asked softly. Are we looking at what the Combine did, what the Imperium did? Seas shook her head. This will be a measurement all of its own that other events will be weighed against long after Terrans have been forgotten and turned the galactic wheel. Speaks shook her head. 
So we've outsmarted ourselves. The data means we have to definite conflict of interest in acting as political envoys. We all know that how the Terrans are when that comes to diplomacy. Pardon me, I appear to have, through no fault of my own, spontaneously ignited. Do you happen to have the time? Oh, and it appears that your food dispenser has ceased working due to issues completely unrelated to any action on my part. Dream said, finished by running a blade arm through her mandibles. That got amused responses, including 117 showing a short cartoon of a human warbore completely wreathed in a flame, with a bunch of little green mantid engineers chasing it with fire extinguishers. Well, we better send this for Terrasol to look over, Dream said sadly. The others nodded. Mr. Ring stared at the Lanactalan dressed in black armor, holding a neural whip in one hand and a neural stunner in the other, and wondered if his beak was strong enough to crack open its helmet. Manted, free world. No, no way, no way that's true. Nothing follows. Trianonad high worlds. But then you got your antenna torn off by a bunch of herd-dwelling herbivores. Nothing follows. Rigel compact. You're acting like you never got your legs torn off by the humans. Nothing follows. Cygnus Surian Gestalt. Who cares? It's a hundred million years ago. Most of us weren't even recognizable. Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. It's not what they are. It's that they're still around. Nothing follows. Digital artificial sentient systems. Just picture Project Dandelion Seed and apply it to a bunch of cows. Same idea. Picture the herd all scattering, thundering away. Where was the best direction to go? Into your territory, since your great war machines were chasing you. Nothing follows. Terran Confederacy. Welp, yes, we're gonna end up finishing this war. We'll start with staging in systems within a few hundred light years of the deep darkness and go from there. This war is going to be long. There are factory worlds we're going to have to find and destroy. Well, uh, lots of killing to do. Terran Confederacy whistles as it walks off, twirling a pistol. Terran Confederacy has locked off. Nothing follows. Trainard high worlds. I wonder if it's too late to pretend to be a pacifist. Nothing follows. First Contact Rewind, Chapter 76 his name was Nartrek, the Olvanstrand Servitor species, a neo-sapien from a labor worlds of the unified outer rim. His men called him Old Iron Feathers, one of the toughest air mobile officers in the entire unified military forces. He demanded his men train to absolute edge, kept their armor in the best condition, and worked harder than anyone else. Anyone who couldn't meet his rigorous standards was dropped from his air mobile unit and reassigned somewhere else. He was a veteran of a dozen police actions on nearly two dozen worlds, a veteran of a hundred battles and a thousand firefights. He had suppressed rioters, insurgents, and military forces alike. Speed, accuracy, precision, those were his watchwords. He never spent lives when he could avoid it, not even enemy lives. It hadn't mattered one iota when the precursor jinn had swept him from the sky like so much pollen, leaving him broken and dying in a crater on the surface, his armor destroyed, his body crushed, his spirit bent, but not broken. These errands had mistaken his unit for a search and rescue, had mistaken his top of the flight fair mobile assault suits as SAR units, 
they had pulled him out of the hole in the ground, put him back together, and he had not argued when they outfitted him with an SAR suit and sent him out to rescue soldiers and civilians alike. He had not argued because he was old Iron Feathers, and he did not question why the universe was the way it was. He merely strove to do his part as best he could. Old Iron Feathers was proud of his service during the month-long battle, from rescuing civilian children trapped in a breached shelter to putting wounded soldiers out of the vehicles to making sure civilians were out of the crash and roar of battle. He had thrown himself into his duty as if the entire universe depended on every life that he saved. His men, what few of the ones had survived the attack from the massive Jin, had joined him, renaming the 12th Air Mobile Assault to the 13th Evac SAR. They had thrown themselves into the fray alongside our track again and again. Humans had joined him, including what was called the Medical Fire Support, which either drove heavily armed or armored vehicles designed to transport wounded and defend them, or piloted mechanized combat suits capable of deploying massive amounts of weaponry, or pilots the robot combat power armor that had to a second chamber inside the torso designed for a surgical lab. Old Iron Feathers had fought the entire battle on his own way. He had reminded his men that the true duty lay in defending the people, of the system, not the customate corporations, factories, and the mining facilities, reminded them that every civilian pulled from wreckage was more important than any medal that they might receive for valentry, and vainly dying to protect the plasteel manufacturing facility. Now the battle for the system was over, and Nitrak was to represent his men to the Terran Confederate military, embodied in the Terran named Admiral with the line Harold Askinet which is why he sat with a heavy-armored dropship currently screaming up to the atmosphere that had a massive fleet carrier orbiting the planet. The precursors had been smashed. Those that had not fled were nothing but scrumbling scrap being gone over by the Terran engineers. Old Iron Feathers was proud of his men, proud of their accomplishments. He looked around at his surviving men, fifteen total, including himself, Kalakakan, the transferred from driving the big medical fire support vessel after his arms had been replaced, and matte black cyber arms due to having them torn off by a precursor machine the Saurian had kicked to death. Bulak had learned to pilot one of the heavy armor combat suits and most of the weapons had been replaced by SAR equipment, but it had still mounted some impressive weaponry. It did not shame Natraek that the humans had more powerful weaponry. They were a martial species, a species that had clawed their way up from the dominant life of their own region of the Galactic Spur, defending themselves and their allies with a primate viciousness and a back animal loyalty. He was proud to be counted amongst their numbers now. He understood them. He had fought alongside them, pulled them from the wreckage of their combat machines, or dug partially buried damaged warborgs out of the wreckage of the precursor machine it had defeated. The armored dropship passed through the permeable false screen that allowed the ship to enter the bay but kept the atmosphere from escaping, moved through the computer control to landing zone, and set down gently. The door opened and old Iron Feathers stood up, his men copying him, and they fell out according to rank and squad. Two squads of six, two squad leaders, and he himself. Two columns of men following him. 
In the bay, there were humans waiting. Large, heavy, muscular. Two columns on either side of night truck making a living corridor for them to follow. They all wore the same adaptive combat dress uniform night truck and his men wore. The uniform of the Terran Confederate Armed Service. They all wore the same symbol upon their shoulders. Two serpents climbing a crooked staff with lightning bolts on either side. They were at a posture that Nightruck had learned to be called attention, a respectful posture involving heels together, hands at the sides and chin up, chest out, spine and legs straight. At the far end was a human Admiral Askinet, a female Terran who in charge of the Navy, Medical Corps, ships and personnel. Nightruck had seen her image before, had followed her orders without hesitation, and now could see her in the flesh. When Nightruck and his men reached her, they stopped, all going their best imitations of attention as they could. Nitric saluted with a cybernetic right arm, the joint bird inside the matte black metal. Thirteenth evac SAR reporting, ma'am, Nitric snapped. Permission to board, ma'am. Over fifty years of serving in the military made a new rituals comfortable instead of alien. Permission granted, Captain, the Admiral said. Welcome aboard the TCNV Guardian. Nightruck had looked up the Guardian specs before they had boarded the dropship, the massive hospital and medical ship, built around a super-dreadnought hull, armed with hundreds of point-defense weapons as well as missile pods, shielded by the strongest battle screens the Terrans could produce. It had nearly 200 surgical bays, enough room for a 100,000 beings to recover, and every supporting facility that the Terrans could think of. The sheer scale would have been mind-boggling before the battle. Now, it was just another big ship. Thank you, ma'am, Nitruck said. My men are honored to serve. The Admiral nodded and waved the human to next to her. This is Commodore Astley. He'll show your men where they'll be staying and teach them what to do coming up. Thank you, Nitruck answered. The human seemed pleased with his formality. Let's go to my office. Time to brief you, the Admiral said. With that, she turned and led him away as his men followed the Commodore. Nightruck sat in his quarters that he had been assigned. The Terrans had considered his men and him part of the military now. He had been surprised until he learned that human lawyers had purchased all their contracts, including the contracts of the dead members of his units, and had them reassigned. The customer corporation had been too busy dealing with the massive drop in their stock, as well as the loss of so much of the manufacturing and industrial platforms. Nitruck assumed that the corporation was probably glad for any income that they could get. Trivert was on, and Nitruck watched it interestedly. There was a Langtalan on the screen, relaxing on a couch as he spoke to a human interviewer. Beneath the human was a Kevin Takala, licensed and bonded journalist. And below the Lankalan was Lo Mo Anan, former customer senior executive. I just want the record set straight. Human Kevin Kala, Lo Mo Anan was saying that your nephew was not a criminal, the human said. The Lankalan chortled and shook his head, a very human gesture that Nartruck was sure had been coached for. Oh, my nephew Ulbuak was a criminal, without a doubt. He oversaw many unsavory businesses. That is not my protest. Explain to the viewers at home, if you would, Lomanon, the human said. The Lanik to land straight and sightly, his hands brushing his sash, 
which only had a small hollow pick of a young male Lanachtalan rearing up and firing a pistol in each hand. My nephew cared little for the restrictions of our society. However, when he heard that the precursors were coming, he built shelters for over a quarter of a million beings, all Kistamid employees and their families, and defended those shelters to the death. Lomanan stated, Did he not detonate the facility's nuclear reactor? The journalist asked. Lomanan shook his head. No. He called in an airstrike and General Trucker authorized fire of the atomic weapons. The journalist turned slightly so that she was facing the camera and the Atlantic to land both. We have, through the Freedom of Information Act, acquired the recording of the radio call. Be warned, this is not for sensitive viewers. The screen wavered to show a young male Lanark to land in the cockpit of a mech on the side and an overhead view of the other. The overview showed a precursor machines everywhere. Dead mechs, exploded Terran combat machines, and precursor littering the field. Only one mech fought on. Missing an arm, most weapons torn away, the cockpit covered by a crudely welded piece of armor. Trucker, come in, trucker, the Lanaktalan gasped, identified as Ulmoak, known criminal. The Lanaktalan repeated it four times. Natrak had learned enough to be able to tell that the young male Lanaktalan was paralyzed from his torso, abdominal flank joining them. Finally, another voice added, this one identified as General Trucker, 3rd Armored Division Commander. The conversation was short and to the point. Almoak requested the trucker use atomics to scour the site. Nautrek watched the tribe as the mortally wounded Lanaktalan got his overhead mecha to restart and kept fighting. The satellite showed it perfectly, the 64K resolution, as a precursor machine grabbed Ulmoak's upper half and tore it free from the lower flanks. Ulmoak was still firing when the atomics went off and blew the facility from the face of the planet. The scene faded, returning to the human journalist and the Lanaktalan. As you can see, my nephew, for all of his faults, was a hero, fighting to keep the precursors from gaining entry to the shelters, a hero that the humans had to use one of the great bolo tanks to replace, the Lanaktalan said clearly. Well, we're glad to help set the record straight, the human journalist said. The show went on to a commercial and Nartruck turned it off, leaning back in his chair. The entire unified systems are going to be thrown into chaos, he thought to himself, staring at the wall. A medal, an iridium star with a gold heart in the middle, hung on the wall. He had been awarded it by the Admiral herself for leading his men during the long battle. His men had also earned medals, and his unit 13th Armored Evac SAR had received a unit standard that he would have to approve of as well as the battle standard honor. Nitruck sighed, closing his eyes. The CFNF Guardian would be leaving the system soon, heading to another system where the battle was already underway. It would be eleven transit days and fighting was furious. Using his new data link, he began drawing up schedules. Armor, inspections, vehicle inspections, maintenance, training, doctrine, examination, interlink and bat-tack net planning. Old Iron Feathers was content. It was, after all, his profession... The human fleet, with the exceptions of a few ships in orbit around the planets, had left to go assist the other Terrans with the battle in another system. The Lanark to land knew his job. He had received his orders via the secure Galnet link. 
Standard SOP would wait until available resources had been extracted from the planet. The humans, however, had somehow convinced the unified justice system that the planet, the solar system, should belong to them by right by defending it from the precursors. The Kestimet Corporation had no intent of allowing the Terrans to take over the resource-rich planets in the system. The Lanark Delan, using two keys to unlock the keyboard shield, he activated a keyboard and typed in a complex code. The signal went out, transmitted to a hyperpulse generator hidden in a comet orbiting a gas giant. The hyperpulse, undetectable by any system the Lanark Delan had ever discovered, sent the signal. The Lanark Delan typed in the last code. The atomic charge, ten feet below his hooves, went off. In the darkness between the solar systems, something heard the hyperpulse and slowly began to awaken. It was time to harvest. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind, Chapter 77 Nectar Tie The day was warm and pleasant as Nectar Tie, who wore a set of oversized polarized eye shields called sunglasses to protect those sensitive eyes from the Terran energetic yellow sun. Terra was outside the green zone for her race, well into the amber and red where her life was supposed to be harsh and difficult due to the IR and UV rays streaming from the sun. The gamma rays were largely offset by the planet's strong magnetic field. It was a boon for the plants which Nectatai could see, small trees in between the paths for ground-effect vehicles and foot traffic, plants in pots on balconies in front of shops, gardens on rooftops, which was all the stranger to Nectatai, since she watched the special about the terror had one time suffered a genetic engineering disaster that turned the entire planet's ecology against the humans. Lethal plants had effectively sought out humans and mammals that had eventually pushed humans into only a handful of giant megaplexes. Before the Terrans had managed to fix the ecology, the mantids had attacked. They had also spent eons with plants out to kill everything in sight with poisonous leaves, fruit, berries. Acids were the primary weapon of the Terran plants, yet Terrans would eat them anyway, commenting on how the acids made the food taste better. To Nectatai, that spoke of the gastrointestinal tract that could probably dissolve battleship armor. She was sitting with Major Carnite and two big Warborg escorts staring at an odd statue. It was of a half a dozen different types of canines and a quartet of felines, done in bronze, on top of a giant rectangle of grey marble. On each side of the upright rectangle were large braziers, with the flame burned brightly. They were wreaths around the base, and as she watched, people came up to lay more wreaths and few flowers and small little items. What is that? Nectatai asked. They're a memorial, Major Cartwright said, setting down his glass of juice. Part of the sleeping ones? Nectatai nodded. Sure, there was the answer. Actually, it predates the sleeping ones by about a thousand years, Jaconite said. It is a predispora monument. That made Nectati frown. Wasn't your dispora over eight thousand years ago? Nectati watched the robot move up and set a wreath down, surrounded by four smaller robots. She had learned that the AIs often grew, and that the AIs had them change bodies as they grew to teach them about the world around them. It seemed odd to Nectatai, but not more odd than the fact that somehow the Terrans had kept the AIs from attempting to murder them. 
If you ignore the first and second digital biological war, she snorted to herself. Yes, it was. This was our first lesson that the galaxy would be a hard place and would take everything from us if it could. Carnite said. He sipped the glass and set it down. Want me to tell you a story, or do you want to read about it or watch it on the tribid? She squeezed the leg that she was holding in her one grasping hand. You please. Carnite nodded. All right, it was only in our exploration. We hadn't even fully explored out our own system yet when we sent an FTL craft to our nearby neighbor, Alpha Centauri. It was a ripple drive called the Arcuberry Drive. It was powered with a home thorium antimatter, he said. He looked at the statue. We hadn't learned the risks of those two things yet and used cold sleep, a form of cryogenic hibernation, before we learned the risks of that, so that the crew wouldn't age during the travel part of an almost ten-light-year round-trip part of their twelve-year voyage. Carnite signaled for his gloves to be refilled and set his hand atop a Nectati's grasping hand. We learned a lot, gathered a lot of data, and learned about xenoplanets, learned a lot about how the drive operates in deep space, even landed on the four planets that we could. Then the craft returned. Carnite said he took another drink, and Nectati noticed tears welling up in his eyes. When it came back, everything looked fine, nothing looked out of place. What we didn't know is that the ship had brought back a virulent pandemic, one that ripped through the global population and then mutated to be a part of the ecosystem in a violent joke against us. The disease had a 100% lethality over 20 years. It even managed to attach itself to cells of the hosts, becoming a part of their cell. If you removed the disease, its cell died, Carnite said. Nectati could feel the distress and reached out with her cratching hand and rubbed his back. Records talk about it, how horrible it was, how so many people killed themselves or fell into depression as one of the good things in the universe vanished. They were our friends, they were our first thing we uplifted, and we loved them as much as our own children, Carnite said. He took another drink of his glass and wiped his eyes. We have some of them, in a way. We can clone the neural tissue of both species. If we try and clone the entire being, they die before we can even be born. So we have them, in a way, as full conversion cyborgs. But we lost so much, Major Carnite said. Even Digital Sapien self-terminated. It was such a dark day for our people. It suddenly dawned in Nectati what she was looking at. Those were the good boys and the poor boys. Major Carnite nodded. Yep, wiped out by a plague from Alpha Centauri. Afterwards, we uplifted primates, and that didn't go so well either for us for a while, because we needed to learn a lesson about doing things ourselves. We overcame that, eventually. The primacy became the biological, artificial sentient systems, and with a single exception, we've been friends ever since. Except when you went to war with them, Nectati said, trying to be helpful. He laughed then. Seems like we spent half of our existence smashing each other in the face. Nectatine nodded, thinking about it. The Major got emotional over creatures that he had never met, that had all died before he was born, and didn't even try to conceal it. She remembered that the Major Carnite had talked about how he'd been saved twice by the Purr Boys and had worked with a good boy quite often. Have your people tried to solve the problem again? 
she asked. She couldn't imagine that the Terran scientists who seemed to have developed such wonders could not even defeat a virus. It is the longest-running research project that my species has ever known. Even the clone worlds have tried to solve the problem. The problem is, in all the samples we have, in all the samples we've been able to find, the mitochondria of the canine and feline cells were replaced by the virus, and as soon as the body develops complex organs, the whole system fails and the clone dies. I think it was the mitochondria. I'm still a little fuzzy on it, Conright said, shaking his head. Someday, someday we'll crack the problem, but till then we'll hold on tight to their memory. Nectatai shook her head. The civilized races of the poor boys and the good boys would have been written off as a loss, a failed species. Their DNA would have been logged into the great databases and been forgotten by everyone but the odd researcher or two. Your people confuse me sometimes, Major Carnite, she said, still rubbing his back as she stared at the monument. All three species banded together. The poor boys caught, killed, and sometimes ate vermin that could carry sickness. The good boys helped us hunt and guarded the caves. We made sure that they had plenty to eat and a safe place to give birth to the young. Major Carnite said, Wait, the caves? How long ago did your two species bond? Nectar asked. Oh... About, um, uh, 40,000 years ago for the good boys, who self-domesticated for the most part, and about 30,000 years ago for the poor boys, Garnite said. Nectatai inhaled sharply several times at the reminder that less than 50,000 years ago, humans were living in caves. 50,000 years ago, her people had invented fusion power and anti-gravity. Easy, Nectatai, easy, Garnite said, patting her hands with his own. Your people sometimes frighten me, Carnite, she said. How fast you advanced. It should have been a great filter, but you overcame it. Usually by breaking everything in sight till we were the only ones left standing, Carnite chuckled. Again, the offhand and almost amused reference to violence surprised her. Where most species abhorred violence and were physically repulsed by it, to humans it was a part of their bonding. She had seen male humans physically strike each other on the shoulders with clenched fists as a part of a greeting, had seen female humans embrace one another tightly, had seen small children slap and touch one another as part of play. Was it their ability to instantly become violent without a second's hesitation that enabled them to survive long enough to adapt and overcome? Neck Tutty wondered. It made sense. She had watched Major Carnite exercise with another human using a hard-light EVR system, watched the Major exchange punches and kicks that made both combatants grunt with the impacts. He had been stripped to the waist, only wearing his pants, moving in slow circle around a hard-light hologram opponent, who was apparently facing off a hologram of Major Carnite. She had watched, fascinated, as they had fought one another, their speed, power, and certainty in their strikes, blocks, and dodges had been captivating. Even when she realized something with a shock, humans did not have to think about their next action, that they could adapt their reflexes over time so that they could allow their bodies to perform actions automatically. That when engaged in combat, a human could focus not only on their opponent, but their opponent's possible moves, strategies, as well as landscape, their surroundings, and even consider other things. This realization had shocked her to the core. Her own race was a neo-sapient, 
barely above an animal, according to the Unified Species Council. But she had to think for a split second about what she was going to do unless it was such a thing as grasping a branch as she fell. Adaptive reflex neuroplasticity, she had thought. Now she stared at the moment as a pair of beloved lost species. Our first session, she thought to herself, as a pair of small children laid a wreath at the base of the monument. The universe would take everything from us if it could. One of them held a partially animatronic kitty in its arms. The children have never ever met one, yet weep for their losses. Nectarty thought to herself. She tried to decide if she could do the same and had to admit that she would not. None of the races she knew would... A dead species was dead. There was no reason to waste further resources on it. To do so was wasteful and foolish and undermined the common good. That thought surprised her for how uncharitable it was. She considered where that thought had come from and how realized it was how she was educated, what she was taught. If she was asked at the moment when she was watching the immature human cry her heart out for a loss of another being that she had never met, if the human's instinct, passion, and propensity for violence was unwarranted, she would have stated that it was perfectly reasonable when facing a hostile universe. It was not only understandable, it was logical, a perfectly understandable evolutionary trait that had prepared them for forcing the actively hostile reality. Are you distressed? Major Carwright asked. You're weeping. Nectati shook her head. No, I'm feeling empathy for the child's distress. Major Carnite nodded. Her boys and good boys are still beloved by children. She probably wanted a real one. She liked she'd seen on the educational programs and had to be told that they are all gone. It is her first taste of mortality that all things must perish. That made Nectati look up at him. Humans don't. Major Carnite shook his head. We do. Our such templates drift, our bodies wear out. The number one killer of humans is death by misadventure or killed in action if a war is going on. We're perfectly aware of our own mortality. We just fight against it. Yet the being who saved us is called an immortal in the newscasts, Nectati countered. The being who saved you, Daxon, is one of the few immortals left, a product of a bygone age. Eventually, someone or something will kill him. Like the rest of us, death is a great equalizer. Garnite shrugged. Most of them died by the complications. Daxon himself was the last one left. He's over 8,000 years old, one of the original triple helix humans. One of the first full conversion cyborgs, one of the first clinical immortals. Nectati nodded. At one time, the humans had experimented with adding an extra strand to the ladder and the DNA helix in order to provide two more copies of the code. The first version had prevented aging, but had resulted in complications regarding pregnancy, maturity, and had ultimately been stopped due to overpopulation. Humans were so strange, they compacted tens of thousands of years of scientific progress into years or decades or months. Already, humans had decoded her own DNA, performed something called a genome cracking that she had assured was impossible. When they had asked her permission to examine her genome, her genetics, she had agreed because fully examining it beyond verifying her identity and species was impossible. Everyone knew that. Everyone had been taught that. 
Every researcher repeated it, that the DNA helix was too complicated for computers to decode. The humans had also informed her that her race had undergone genetic alteration. The human researchers had asked for permission, and less than two days later, she was being informed that her and all of her surviving crew members had been genetically tampered with. She had been asked why, and although she had told the humans that she did not know, she suspected. Only one group benefited from her people being genetically altered, the civilized species. If they had reached inside her, reached inside her parents, and changed them, what else had they done? They looked silly, fussy, and seemed incompetent, but were they really? She hadn't realized that she was shaking or making sounds of distress until she felt herself lifted up, set on Major Cartwright's leg, and hugged firmly. The pressure eased her stress until she could finally breathe normally. Let's get you back to the hotel. I think you've had about enough sightseeing for the day, Major Carnite stated. Neck to tie, nodded. She held Major Carnite's hand with both of hers as they walked across the street and into the hotel. She was proud of herself. She had gone all the way across the street and halfway down the block on her first excursion. Twice, little immature humans tried to hug her. Both times their parents stopped them and the children cried in emotional distress. She had felt the joy her appearance had caused in the little spirits and felt that their emotional pain at not being able to hug her was genuine. A human will push you face first through a cry-steel window and then turn around and want to give your litter mates an unconditional love. She thought to herself as the elevator moved up to the luxury suite, all based on the perceived threat. She was quiet when they entered the suite, letting her thoughts run through her mind. While Major Carnite was speaking to his superiors on his data link, she used hers differently in a privacy of her own room. She moved in front of the mirrors, removed her pants and shirt, sash, belt, shoes and gloves, and took pictures of herself naked, careful to get herself from every angle. She then took pictures of her clothing, making sure to get it in front, back and sides, then dressed carefully and took pictures again after combing her fur. She moved over to the EVR terminal and loaded up a few programs that she found for free. She converted the new pictures of herself to EBR and then airbrushed away the nipples and genitals, removed her vestigial climbing claws, and then converted it to a weighted wireframe model as well as a texture overlay. Then she scanned her clothing, making the attachment points quickly and easily. The software was eager to help the limited VI in the program, almost anticipating what she wanted to do. She made the same color changes to the shirts and pants, a few patterns changes and a sash and belt, shoes and gloves, added different color eyes and different fur patterns and colors. Some of it she made bright and silly. She then used another program to convert the wireframe to construction template and then uploaded the dressed one to her room's replicator. It took only a few minutes for the replicator to ping and the shield to rise. Fur was too sticky and unpleasant, almost greasy feeling, so she tried again. She had to look up a tutorial for a smiling human explaining how to make realistic feeding kitty kitty hair for a poor boy or a good boy, and she followed along, weighing her own hair on the model. It only took three more attempts before it felt perfect. She reprogrammed it to say a few things. The most important was, I love you. When hugged, she enabled it to toddle along with a small child, holding hands, and downloaded the freeware response pack for the caretaker and companion animatronics, 
tweaked it according to the tutorial video performed by a human-sized blue and white fox, and then ran one off in the replicator. It was perfect. She ensured the creators of the freeware program she had downloaded would get a tip from each sale of the uploaded it to Solnet, offering it for the same prices as most animatronic child-nurturing companions. She offered it in over two dozen styles, all based on crew members who had died in the precursor attack, including a customer sign your own colors and put it for sale along with additional clothing packs. Then she took images of her poor suite, both how it had originally looked and then and how it had arrived, made models of them then and then advised of the EVI, had made a replicate of versions of a kind of do-it-yourself model as well as modeled ones. She uploaded that too. Done, she wandered into the main suite and saw that it was almost dark. She had spent the afternoon working and had enjoyed it, which was weird. Her genetic tests had shown that she was a leader at heart, genetically programmed to command others. Yet she had felt contentment while she had worked, imagining the expressions on children's faces when the replicators printed it out for them to hold. She had made sure that her animatronic self was firm to hold on and warm with the beating heart of the children to hear. She had even used allergen neutral and immunocompromised safe materials. She had even gone through the her database of where she had been and found two children who had wanted to hug her and the one on the shuttle and sent their parents free copies of her captain's compliments. Feeling confused as she would feel such contentment just crafting copies of herself, she sat on the big couch and slowly ate dinner, a wonderful concoction called uh, a nacho bowl that contained ground beef and vegetables and a wonderful crunchy bread. There was a pinging and Major Carnite turned to her and raised an eyebrow. Did you make a stuffy of yourself and upload it to the Solnet market? he asked. Yes, I thought your children may enjoy it, she said. He shook his head. Well... Congratulations on being the number one downloaded template in the last two hours, he laughed. You have people as far away as the Clone Worlds downloading copies of you to make stuffies of. At least you followed the VI's advice and trademarked yourself. Nick Tetty shrugged. If it brings people enjoyment, I am content. Major Carnite shook his head. Do you remember how you were worried about paying for the repairs to your ship? He asked. Yes, I, I still worry. But perhaps I'll still be able to mitigate the price somewhat for my people, Nectatai said. Um, you might want to come over here and where I can embrace you, Major Carnite said. Curious, she moved over and sat on her human's lap, leaning back as he put his arms around her. Once again, she was struck by how reassuringly solid and warm he was. All right, well, this is a very pleasant and I enjoy it very much. Why? Check your bank account balance, he said. Sighing, she'd only seen a small amount that Terra had transferred compared to the amount she knew that she'd need to fix the suite. She opened her bank account. She immediately began to shudder, hyperventilating in panic. Major Carnite hugged her firmly as she stared at the number. She had sold over 2.8 billion versions of the stuffy and nearly 11 million models of the suite. Manted free worlds. Wow, that's a long download queue. Nothing follows. Triana Ard is five worlds. Same here. Wow, everyone wants it. Nothing follows. Clone worlds. Oh, this is bullcrap. The servers are overloaded. Nothing follows. 
Regalian compact. Oh my god, it's so soft and fluffy, and it says I love you when you hug it. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 78. Neck to Tie. The storm thundered across the city, lightning flashing and booming, rain driving hard against the crystal windows, and wind howled through the streets, the clouds low and dark. Nectatai stood on the balcony of the suite that she had been allocated. The safety field dialed down enough to let some of the wind and rain through. She wasn't at risk of being thrown from the balcony by the wind or being drowned by the rain, but she could feel the savagery of the storm somewhat. She knew that most beings would take shelter, hide from the furious nature, but she wanted to experience, as much as she could, what the humans had put up from their earliest of days. She wanted to, she needed to, understand the humans, in the same way that her people had learned about the Lanark lands and their unified civilized species councils. She wanted to learn about the humans. Both were a dominant species in their sector of the galactic armspur, but they both approached everything from such different angles. The Lanarktalan first impulse was to preserve resources for future generations, to make sure that everyone got their fair share of the resources of the newly discovered planet. A human's first instinct was to alter their environment or themselves to survive. She had watched the tribe, found out that she could look up educational or entertainment programs and order them to either rent or for a brief time or buy, but the ability to watch it when she wanted for the rest of her life. The more she watched, the more she understood. Human infants, from the moment that they were born, looked for their mother, could grasp tightly to things and were capable of vocalizing distress or need. They were highly physical and their mental faculties started developing quickly. Human children progressed so rapidly, nectatized, that double-checked several times. Over and over, she saw proof the humans were capable of multiple actions at once. The most incredible she saw was a video of a small children patting their own heads while rubbing their stomachs and singing a song. Some of the children got so excited that they jumped up and down while performing these actions. That made her stare. She tried repeating it, a little game a small human child played, and could not manage to do any two of the three. Their societies could be just as confusing. She was shocked to find out that, for most part, the Terran Confederacy did not care how a planet or alliance was run. The Confederacy was more of a mutual defense trade agreement, technology-sharing compact, than an actual government. Individual planets and small groups of system states were left alone. The Terran Confederacy did not even get involved with rebellions against a planetary government the majority of the time, considering it an internal matter. Then there was space exploration. Losing their friends had made a deep, lasting impact. The universe was not a source of resources for the good of all, like the Lanark Delans. To humans, the universe was a cold, malevolent entity that would take away everything and leave you dying and alone, gasping for air it held just beyond reach. The Lanark Delans looked at every technological breakthrough or scientific research discovery and how we would benefit or put in harm's way every single member of their society. 
Humans looked at each other then as how will this protect benefit assist us and then adapted it to do just that. Eventually, it had led her to looking up the government office, which led her to speaking to a full-crafted AI, who had recognized her because it had bought a VR version of a stuffy for its two child hashes to play with. With the VI's help, Weaver3381, she had looked at a vast catalogue of potential purchases, adding requirements, each time worried that it would prohibit her from finding what she wanted. After nearly an hour of searching, she had found, uh, with Weaver3381's help, exactly what she'd been looking for. A planet. The survey crew had gone through the system, ran probes, done cartography, and jumped out. It had been registered and, to Nectati's shock, put up for sale. Weaver3381 had helped her fill out the paperwork she needed as a refugee of a species in danger, and helped her register her cooperation with the Terran Confederacy had helped her fill out the paperwork as a recipient of the precursor extinction assault, and then helped her select all kinds of colony options. She had contacted the suite's computer and downloaded the technical specifications and blueprints of the boom or bust and added that to the paperwork. She had comlinked her crew members and shown them everything, and despite their disbelief, they were all still hopeful and made changes based on their suggestions and desires. Weaver 3381 had assisted the whole way, getting excited over habitation sections and expansions. Then she had checked her account, holding her breath. She had the money. She couldn't believe it. A simple set of stuffies, scale model ships, including the boom or bust, with or without detachable colony section action, had a tiny little model figurines of a crew and people, and she had barely watched her credit balance without hyperventilating. Nectatai had enough money to buy a star system, an updated boomer bust with Terran civilian technology, contract vessels to help move any other people willing to come to the new colony, and have enough left over to pay for repairs to It Tastes Sweet as well as the crew's medical needs. She had finished everything and moved out to the balcony to watch the storm. The wind and rain felt like a representation of how she felt when she got caught up in the Terran Confederacy. There was so much energy around her. Even now, late at night, she could look down and, with the terraces autofocus feature in the protective fields, she could see people moving through the streets, shopping in stores, talking with one another in dining establishments. Even with their extensive lifespans, humans were active as someone who had only a few days to live and wanted to experience as much as possible. It taught us that it would universe would take everything from us if it could. She heard Major Carnite's voice again as she stood in within the rain and her eyes closed. The storm, strangely enough, was easing her distress rather than increasing it. The feel of the wind ruffling her wet fur, the feel of the thunder rumbling through her, the cold, wet rain all combined to make her feel, well, grounded. She was holding onto the railing with all four hands, reaching forward with first one foot and then the other, switching back and forth and holding onto the metal rods that made up the balcony safety fence. The safety railings felt solid. She'd found out it's something called a dura-alloy, nearly unbreakable and used in most human construction. The solid feeling made it so that holding onto it made her feel anchored to the world, safe 
and secure in a strange way. Nectatai thought about the tribal programs that she'd watched, about the colony disasters in Terran history. They had suffered precursor attacks that had wiped out entire colonies. They responded by allowing colony forces to have naval forces and planetary defensive forces strong enough to, at the very least, hold off a precursor till nearby systems could rally around the attack. It wasn't mandatory. You could take the risk if you wanted to. Nectati knew that the Lanaktalans would have made it mandatory and discharged the species for the unified military forces' response. That was the big difference between the Lanaktalans and the humans. You didn't have to do anything. She could have started the colony just by having her and her crew drop off on the planet with a smile and a pair of modesty shorts each. Not even a single nanoforge. The Lanaktalan had lists and lists of what was required. All expensive, all charged to entire species. The differences were simple, but startling in their effects. She had grown to maturity in a system that removed choice and personal responsibility to replace it with the various councils. Terrans basically went, Don't cry to me if you didn't take my advice and got eaten. The thunder boomed from the lightning striker, then less than a mile away, pulling her thoughts away from the gloomy track that had now the Langnet-Kalans removed any chance of success by claiming to have your best interests at heart. Pulled her from wondering how different things would be for her people if it had been the Terrans who had found them first. She sighed, staring at the night sky. She was from further up in the galactic spur. Her night sky had more stars in it, but for some reason, she's sky looked breathtaking to her. Her data linked pinged, and she checked it. It was Major Carnite, letting her know that he was standing slightly behind her. I'm just watching the storm, Nectatai said. I just came to check on you, he answered. You have quite a few shocks today. Nectatai snorted a laugh. That's one way to put it. Anything you'd like a non-educational video to answer, he asked. Nectatai tilted her face up to the rain as it blew across her in a gust of wind. When it passed, she looked back at the city. Too much. New Terrans are confusing. Eh, we're pretty simple. That made Nectatai laugh. Simple. Her people, who in less than 50,000 years went from a crude dwellings and caves to having over a dozen methods of faster-than-light travel and autonomous colony creation systems, and have settled over 12,000 planets in less than 8,000 years. Yes, so very simple. There was a silence for a moment, broken only by a rumble or thunder. It is what it is, Major Conright said heaving his shoulders, which Nectatai's implant informed her for the hundredth time was a shrug. Nectatai shook her head. I bought a solar system, me, a ship captain who lost her colony and had her ship blown to pieces on her, was able to buy a solar system because she uploaded a children's toy version of herself for home fabricators to make. Now my crew and I are able to buy an entire solar system all for eternity. Knives weird like that sometimes, Carnite said, unhelpfully. The sale went through in less than an hour. Yep. I bought upgraded versions of the boom and bust and our colony equipment, she said. Yep. I arranged for travel of tens of thousands of my people and charter passenger liners with cargo ships to carry their personal possessions. Yep. 
because I felt empathy for the small children who wanted to hug me. Uh, yep. Nectatai turned away from the railing and stared at Major Carnite, who was standing there, dressed in a soft cloth of two-piece sleeping suit, dark blue covering with the animated picture of what she had learned were bunnies jumping and dancing or nibbling grass or flowers. She stared for a second at the huge human, made a hard muscle and rock-like bone, who was wearing bunnies as a sleeping suit. She blinked, wondering if she was seeing things. What? Carnite asked. I'm just, uh, she paused, unsure of how to react. Are those, um, are you wearing, uh, bunnies? Carnite looked down at his pajamas, then at her, giving her another shrug. What? I like bunnies. It was all too much for her. The little bunnies had topped it off and made the complete lunacy of everything crash down on her. The sight of an apex predator wearing a sleeping suit with animated cartoon bunnies on it was just the last thing she needed to fall apart. She started laughing. She couldn't stop. Bunnies and soda systems and colonies and stuffies and some assembly required models and AIs and everything else just collided inside of her. Major Carnite's implant alerted him to the fact that she was getting hysterical. He moved out, knelt down, and hugged her, putting pressure on her so that her limbic system would calm her down. She kept laughing for almost two minutes before slowly calming down. Finally, she tapped him to let him know that he could let her go. Nectatai felt better as he led her into the suite so that she could try off. She went into her room, got undressed, and stood under the warm air dryer. She brushed her hair and grabbed a pair of modesty shorts from the top before laying down on the huge bed and staring at the ceiling. Her implant asked her if she wanted to see anything on the ceiling as she went to sleep. A quick query got the images she wanted, and the system in the room dutifully showed them on the ceiling. Video footage the survey ship had taken of the planet that she had purchased. The probe flying over vast interlinked forests that contained no animals and barely any insects. Over huge lakes empty of everything but base algae, across plains where grass wavered. There was only one quick one-month-long survey done on the entire system. It was insane of her to buy a whole solar system down to the mining rights, when for all she knew there was some kind of super virus waiting to eat her people. But she had done it, because she understood now. She understood it all. She even understood the humans now. The bunnies had been the final clue. They seemed insane, seemed crazy, because the universe itself was insane. She understood. End of chapter. First Contact Rewind Chapter 79 the dominion of law dropped from jump space into the system, going immediately to full stealth. It waited for more ships to join the flagship, going into heavy stealth and slowly moving into the system under silent running. A probe came back showing the system was largely uninhabited. There were no planets on the green zone, only a single planet in the amber zone. The rest were five planets were in the red zone, with two gas giants and an asteroid belt. The sun was a low-energy yellow star, sizzling along its lifespan without a care in the universe. The probe reported that there were transmissions from the planet in the amber zone and altered calls to get closer. 
He passed nearby, sending back images via undetectable methods. Two facilities in orbit, both of them stations, one of them at least two centuries old by the amount of dust on the facility. It was cold and dark, only a slight energy signature that the probe determined was a long-life fission reactor that probably was responsible for some kind of maintenance mode. The other was unpowered, with the ship docking slips, habitats, but was exception of what appeared in the automation, it was largely deserted. There was a single set of satellites around the planet, including one that was obviously active, but gave no signals beyond navigation warnings that the probe could detect. A single satellite above the northern pole gave out a simple repeating message over and over that was read and discarded. Ground side, there were scattered small settlements, mostly devoted to farming, crops, and orchards. There were a few quarries and mines, but nothing automated or special. There was some logging out, and it looked like the Terrans were doing it by hand rather than automated. The probe orbited the planet three times, with a high angle that let it sweep the entire planet with a wide-angle passive scanners. Four spaceports, one in each continent, surrounded by an empty space. Few roads visible to the probe scanners. No major industry, barely any energy readings were beyond the local power plant needed to power the small settlement. The scanners caught a few of the local residents outside and transmitted it back to the Dominion of Law for all the officers to look over. Tall, but so powerfully built and looked like they should be short and squat in person. Fur covering the top of their head, longer on the females, with facial fur on the males, bipeds with thick legs and arms, and a single pair of forward-facing eyes and an omnivore teeth. Terrans. The probe moved on, checking the other planets. There was no facilities, nothing, no spaceships, no waiting military fleets hidden in the gas giants, nothing of any concern. With the exception of two space stations, the satellites were no facilities off the planet. With the exceptions of the spaceports, there was no sign of being space-capable species. There were no metroplexes, no supercities, no arcologies, just scattered settlements of a few score Terrans and their livestock. The transmissions were standard navigational aid signals from the spaceports, the one active space station, and the satellites. The Dominion of Law consulted with the other weapons. It was perfect. The twenty ships Armada, led by the Dominion of Law, swept inward, running silent, until they were surrounding the planet. They waited for a few moments and then dropped their stealth systems, waiting in orbit of the planet, and the planet below them started bleeding. Neither of the space stations woke up. Groundside ignored them. After eight hours, Dominion of Law began to broadcast the spaceports below. Surrender and be destroyed. No answer. One of the communications officer on a different ship, the regulation of force, commented that perhaps nobody was at a spaceport's listening. At first he was mocked and scoffed at, but as the hours passed, other communications officers began suggesting the same thing. A shuttle was dispatched from the peacekeeper's might to land in one of the spaceports. It came in in a high arc, the hull smoking and the re-entry angle stripped armor away from the heating. It landed, thudding down nearly at 1.5 Gs of intense force, and the sides dropped down. Peacekeepers rushed the buildings, took up positions around the shuttle, all of them in power armor and carrying heavy weapons. It was empty. 
It had power from the fission generator on standby and a computer that displayed standby mode on the screens in a crude Terran language. The peacekeepers swept through the buildings. There were maintenance equipment fjords, fuel tanks topped off, passenger lounge, even a repair facility, all devoid of life. The peacekeepers lifted off the high altitude and checked, one by one, the other three spaceports. They were the same. The peacekeepers returned to the peacekeepers' might and reported in. The video records created by their armor was gone over. The scans were checked again. There was a manufacturing facility on each continent, near the center, but the power readings were almost non-existent. Discussions were had about how the manufacturing facilities probably deserted and deployed the peacekeepers would be futile. Finally, it was decided a peacekeeper shuttle with science and technical officers would be sent to each of the manufacturing facilities for a quick survey. They would then return. Shuttles roared down on least time approaches, one of them hitting the retro thrusters hard enough that the occupants were subjected to 1.75 G shock that resulted in severe injuries to several of the troops on board. Still, the back hatch opened and the peacekeepers, technicians and science officers all hurried into the manufacturing facility. They were empty. The refinery in standby mode, the manufacturing lines almost inexistent, just empty conveyors and assembling areas. The offices were empty and any available display terminals just read standby mode and refused to accept any input. The engineers found the massive supercomputer arrays, which they determined were excessive for the facility, but it was virtually empty. They would be able to gain access to the storage drives and found that the exception of a stripped-down operating system, the supercomputers were little more than complex paperweights. Frustrated, the peacekeepers and their charges returned to the shuttles and from there back to the fleet, which was still broadcasting to the surface. Discussions flew furiously. Perhaps the spaceports and manufacturing facilities could be destroyed by orbital bombardment as a clear message. Maybe one or two on them to send a message. The peacekeepers wanted to land in force and pass by some small settlements because they were sure that that would send a message. The scientists urged caution. The facts didn't add up to what they were seeing. The engineers and technicians warned that something seemed strange. One officer pointed out that there was no spacecraft evident on the surface, so why have a spaceport on each continent, and why a factory on each continent? Both of them centrally located. The space stations passed over the four spaceports every four rotations of the planet. But why? It made no sense. A communications officer reported that there had not been an upsurge in communications traffic. The settlement still had signals between them, each settlement transmitting to and receiving from the settlements within range into a complex web that covered the entire planet. The islands all had villages on them that were a part of the web. However, communication density and amount had not picked up. The communications officers reported that either nobody had noticed the fiery entry of the shuttles or, and this was more likely in his opinion, nobody had cared. It infuriated the leader of the Armada. How dare the Terrans ignore his Armada? How dare they ignore his powerful vessels, his 50,000 peacekeepers, his tanks and aircraft and combat shuttles? Just who did they think they were? He ordered a full combat drop, 
There were 4,000 settlements total on the surface, and his combat planners allocated troops so each force could suppress at least 20 settlements each, with 250 troops backed by tanks, air support, combat craft, and artillery. His men ran into the shuttles, loaded up, and the sky was full of assault shuttles, making least-time vectors to the ground. The manufacturing and starport centers were occupied. Assault shuttles slammed down just outside the villages and deployed the might of the peacekeepers. The commander waited eagerly to hear how about the Terrans had pleaded for mercy before having the might of his fist brought down upon them. He could see the vast clouds of smoke from the surface and knew his troops were bringing the might to bear. Hours passed without any more than standard maneuvering reports. The commander ordered a report immediately, and a cringing underling brought it. There were no Terrans to be found. The houses were empty, the barns were empty, even the cattle and food animals were gone. The smoke was from burning fields and orchards and houses. The landing craft had been greeted by smoke, flame, and silence. The starports and manufacturing center had all been wreckage, even the tarmac cratered and torn. The commander ordered search parties out. The Terrans couldn't have just vanished. It was impossible. A lowly infantry officer brought up a question. Why had they burnt everything? Another commented that it looked like a war had happened and they had just missed it. The question went through the ranks. Where are they? The patrol started feeding to report in, or reported in with one or two less than they had left with the ones that were missing having the seemingly vanished. A tank crew came up missing. An aircraft wing with six vessels activated their engines and blew up on the ground. The fuel tanks put in place to replace the destroyed Terran ones, exploding with the aircraft. The barracks came up empty. The corpses were found next to the dirt road leading away from the burnt-out rubble of the town. The peacekeepers had been bound hand and foot, made to kneel in front of a ditch, and had been executed by sharp heavy blade to the skull. The Armada commander ordered that any Terran court was to be immediately put to death. His commanders all grumbled that the problem was, apparently, there weren't any Terrans. The troops became jittery. More than once they opened fire at shadows. Twice two patrols spotted each other and opened fire on one another. The planet was still empty. A shuttle went to take off, got less than a hundred feet into the air, and exploded into wreckage. The airfield commander ordered all shuttles examined. They were all wired with explosives. Three exploded as technicians tried to remove the charges. Two more exploded for apparently no reason. The airfield commander ordered the last one taken up to the orbit for safekeeping. Nobody would enter the shuttle. An hour later, his desk comlink beeped for attention. When he answered it, a human voice said in a perfect unified standard, Open the desk drawer, you insipid drooling cow tower. Furiously, he yanked open the drawer. The explosive charge blew shredded hamburger out of the window and all over the airfield. Tanks started running over explosives. The lucky ones just destroyed the track. The unlucky ones were called out like a county fair apple. Crews had tried to walk back, just vanished. The bootprints just vanishing. Sometimes the lead tank was blown up, other times the last tank, sometimes the one in the middle. Some of the peacekeepers would have deserted, except there was nowhere to go. 
The Armada commander was furious. He had been eight days and nobody had seen a single human, but the casualties were mounting. He was being mocked. He knew it. He ordered all his forces to take over the ruins of the starport, to dig in around it and fortify. He watched with satisfaction as his peacekeeping forces did as commanded. Still, his ships broadcast their message of peace and pacification. Surrender and be destroyed. His men were on a hair trigger. Violence had broken out in the ranks. Troops refused to go out and patrol the countryside, unwilling to be one of the casualties to where sure to be inflicted. An enlisted being rolled a hand grenade into the command tent of the deployment officer. A firefight broke out between the officers and established beings when the established beings were ordered to make foot patrols through the tall grass to search out any Terran that might be hiding in the grass. And still, there was no evidence that Terrans were anywhere on the planet. The Armada commander was beginning to despair. How was he supposed to prove the supremacy of the unified military forces if he couldn't even find any Terrans to suppress? Then the reports came in. The structures in the villages were back. The peacekeeper vehicles roared in. By the time they got there, the villages were engulfed in flame again, the smoke rising high into the air. Shuttle commanders ordered their men into the smoke. The smoke was thick and seemed to interfere with the peacekeeper's armor visuals. Transmissions were staticky and broken up. That's when the screaming began. Images began flooding in. Terrans. Terrans in heavy armor, some wearing helmets, some without. Heavy kinetic weapons in one hand, swords with terrible toothed chains that ripped through the peacekeeper armor as if it were tissue. They were in a smoke, killing everything. The ones without helmets had bestial expressions of rage as they roared their battle cries and slew every peacekeeper that had entered the smoke. The peacekeepers and the encampments were the spaceports and manufacturing facilities stared in shock at the static-filled and broken-up transmissions. The Terrans showed no mercy, neural bolts doing nothing to the howling and rampaging warriors. Then the peacekeepers manning the outside perimeter heard it. A roar of rage. From all the tall grass they thundered out. Heavy armor covering them, jet black with just a Terran confederacy symbol of a planet being crushed by a human hand. Shoulder and back-mounted weapons thundered, chainswords howled as they ripped through the tank armor as easily as they tore through peacekeeper armor. Heavy kinetic weapons in their hands roared as shells caused anything that they hit to explode. The Armada commander stared in shock, trying to process what he was seeing. It was only a few, less than a dozen, in the villages, and only a couple hundred at each of the encampments. But his men were being slaughtered as if they were made of tissue, wrapped in ground meat. At the 10% casualty mark, the ground force commanders, those still alive, sounded the retreat. By all known conventions, the warfare the Terrans should have broken off should have stopped their attack, rather than expend resources to further prosecute an already won battle. Instead, the humans, if anything, increased their advance, as if the fact that the peacekeepers were retreating somehow moved a dial from battle to full-on slaughter as they chased the peacekeepers down. 
In several cases, they boarded the shuttles with the peacekeepers, slaughtering the screaming and panicked peacekeepers inside the very shuttles that they were supposed to carry them to safety. Shuttles began exploding in midair as Terrans proved to have anti-air capabilities in their armor. Shoulder-fired missiles streaking through the air to destroy some of the shuttles as they lifted off in panic. Tanks vanished in explosions from shoulder-fired missiles. Artillery vehicles were torn apart with kinetic weapon fire, chainsaws, or just plain armored fists. Tactical net staggered and went down from the sheer carnage on the surface. More and more shuttles were taking off, and the Armada commander breathed a sigh of relief. It looked as if all the shuttles sent to the villages would be recovered. One by one, the remaining shuttles managed to lift off, more and more escaping being knocked down by the air by the Terrans' highly effective anti-aircraft missiles. Still, on the ground, the Terrans were rampaging through, killing any peacekeeper they encountered. Most of the peacekeepers had panicked, attempting to run out into the grass. There, they discovered the females, waiting, with vibro-knives and hot coals. The tall grass echoed with screams. Shuttles began to dock, but the Armada commander breathed a sigh of relief. Then... The reports came flooding in. Terrans were aboard the shuttles and came out firing their weapons. They cared nothing for hull breaches, often deliberately decompressing entire ship sections by firing missiles or shooting hull until they tore through it. The Armada commander watched in horror as one by one each of the twenty ships in his Armada were marked with ancient arcane ruin for I have been boarded that the computer had to recall from deep storage memory, a rune so old that it wasn't even taught anymore. He was still trying to figure out how to repel the borders, with all the peacekeepers on the planet, when the hatch to the flag bridge blew inward, propelled by a kick of an armored Terran, a heavy magak round shredded every one on the bridge. The shuttles arced away from the ships, heading in a slow and leisurely re-entry path, all the shuttles were inside the atmosphere when, one by one, the ships exploded as the reactors went critical and self-destructed. The shuttles landed and the Terrans got off, walked back to the tall grass. As night fell, the outline of the shuttle softened and then began to dissolve as the reclamation nanites of all the creation engines reclaimed the materials of the shuttles. By dawn, the houses in the villages were back. The manufacturing facility was slowly being created. The starport was slowly being reconstructed. The villagers returned, going out behind the homes and digging up sealed heavy containers. They removed their armor, cleaned it, and put it away in the containers. Weapons followed. The containers were closed and buried again. The woman exchanged bloody active camouflage for bath and a clean dress. The men put on floppy hats. The woman put on bonnets. The animals were led from the heavily shielded shelters and were glad to be back in the sunshine. Many needed milking. Above them, the satellite peeped out the same signal over and over. Danger, danger, danger. Confederacy military decommissioning primitiveness therapy world. No entry and non-medico personnel. Danger, danger, danger. Attempt no landing here, no orbital perihelion closer than 500 kilometers. 
Atmospheric entry is forbidden. Confederacy military decommissioning primitiveness therapy world. Patients can have extreme bouts of violence and respond to unauthorized contact. Authorized medical personnel only. Contact Confederacy Medico Orbital Station Control Beacon Hydrogen 2-1 Transition Frequency 1420.405751786 MHz for more information. Danger, danger, danger. Warning, warning, warning. Do not attempt communication with surface personnel. Confederacy Military Decommissioning Primitiveness Therapy World Patients can have a violent response to unwarranted communication. Unregulated contact with patient can have adverse effects on therapeutic sessions. Authorized medico personnel only. Contact Confederacy Medico Orbital Station Control Beacon on Hydrogen 2-1 Transition Frequency 1420.405751786 MHz for more information. Warning, warning, warning. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 80, Vuxton. The battle was fierce. Fighting had ended only a week before Vuxton had been released from the hospital ship with the CNV Mercy. His leg had been shattered and the Terrans had regrown it. It had been a painful, itchy, and tormenting during those three days it had regrown. He had not cared. Even the intense physical therapy to help him overcome the lingering effects of his injury and the mental therapy he had received to help ease combat trauma had not dampened his spirits. He had spent his time in the arms of the brood carriers and his wife, Brentelek, surrounded by giggling podlings who were eager to play little games of hide-and-seek and watch me dance with him. He had been shocked to see Donovan, as the last time he had seen the big human scout, he had been shot through the head by a precursor. Donovan had not remembered him too clearly, and at Brentlick's advice had not bothered the human too often. Now he was back home. Well, as close to home as he could get. The city had been born in, raised and educated in, and had lived his life in, was shattered skeleton of its former self. He had spent months fighting in that city, wrapped in the Terran scout armor almost the entire time, only leaving it when he was inside one of the massive armored vehicles. And only then, so that he could clean himself with an armor underwent maintenance. He left a few times to drop off refugees at the heavily fortified encampments and hospitals, but most of his time had been spent in the streets and buildings of that city. His eyes stopped on a skyscraper. It had been five hundred stories of offices and luxury apartments. The atomic fire on the fourth day had ripped it down to sixty stories, but it still towered over the skyline. He could remember, knew if he closed his eyes he would relive, running up those stairs, following sergeant, carrying anti-armor rockets that they fired from the twentieth floor into the top of the precursor assault machines. He swallowed deeply. Brentlick noted her mate's distress and gathered him up in her arms. She nuzzled his neck, crooning softly to him. She had disagreed with returning to the planet so soon, but her husband had insisted. She disagreed even more with him coming here to view their former home. But again, he had insisted. Brentlick felt nausea at seeing the city so destroyed, so damaged, even as part of his soul felt vindicated by the damage. 
the overseers had hidden away or fled. Those who had not been maddened by the precursor screams had left her people to die on the planet. It felt right to her that their center of power had been so ravaged by the battle, by the war. Does it make me a bad person to feel this way? She wondered to herself as her husband buried his face in her fur. The two brood carriers moved up to hug him with her, to shield him with their fluffy tails as they began crooning at him and stroking him. The dozen or so podlings, all orphans, holding tight to the brood carrier's fur, made soothing chirping noises to try and ease Wookston's pain. How things have changed, Rentlick thought. Only a little while before, the brood carriers would have been confused by Wookston's anguish and would have been distressed that they didn't know how to care for him. Now they were familiar with his pain and how to soothe it. Finally, he was ready to be released, touching noses to her. I am sorry, he said softly, staring down at the street where he could see the battered ground car that they had used to drive to the outskirts of the city. I did not think it would be so difficult. We are a gentle and peaceful people, my husband, Brentlick said softly, turning away from the melted-looking skyline. We were ill-equipped for this fight. Together, they started walking down the hill. The podlings looked around with wide eyes at the grass and the junidad trees, the odd things strewn around. It didn't really register to Buxton and his family that they walked around an abandoned tread of a running gears from a precursor tank. It was just another piece of rubble. Do you think the overseers will return? Brentelect asked. They better not, Buxton said, one hand dropping to his side to find nothing. Brentlick caught the motion, almost tearing in the way that he'd done it, and knew that he'd been reaching for his Magak pistol. I have heard the Terran lawyers have emancipated us, Brentlick said, repeating the rumor that she had heard moving through the refugee camp. I've heard that they stand with us now. Blood to blood, steel to steel, my life is yours, brother, Buxton quoted. Potter Brentlick missed the factory worker who was more concerned with getting a family out of debt. We will burn with a life of our own, sister, Brentlick added. Potter missed the simple sanitation worker, concerned with the same things that she had been. You can't go home anymore, Brentlick quoted to herself. They got in the beat-up ground car, a former corporate vehicle that had been sprayed black with blue stripes on the side to denote that it was non-combat status. Buxton drove, and for a split second, Brentlick wondered where he learnt to drive. She knew the city behind her, slowly receding into the distance, could have whispered the answer to her. The podlings were excited but quickly tied out. The brood carriers fell asleep with them their fluffy tails hiding the sleeping orphans. One had crawled up onto Brentlick's lap, and she stroked the soft fur gently. It was missing an ear. It was nearly nightfall before they got back to the refugee camp. It was a huge, sprawling thing, with walls around it festooned with tower-mounted guns, anti-aircraft guns, point-defense systems, battle-screen projectors. The walls were scarred here and there. The precursors had thrown their might at it twice and rebuffed both times by a handful of human troops and hundreds of Tulkans, terrified and distressed. Firing rocket launchers and magnetic accelerated rifles they had been barely trained upon. Now the night no longer had precursor machines lurking in it, 
a huge bolo tank sat nearby, ready to defend the refugee camp of 2.2 million Talcon if any precursor machine had managed to remain hidden long enough to sneak up on the refugee camp. Brentlick had expected the refugee camp to be a place of mud, sewage, and misery. Instead, it was oddly almost a normal city. If it wasn't for the featureless and stark architecture, the streets were paved, lined with lights. There were little parks and brew carriers and podlings, their shelter entrances scattered around them, as well as some fountains and some hastily assembled statutories that the Talcon found pleasing. The buildings were designed for Talcon comfort. The insides were comfortable even if the outsides were black durasteel with cement steel armor with crystal steel windows. The refugee camp is more Talcon than any place that we've ever lived in generations, Brentlick thought to herself as they slowly drove down the street. She knew the humans had bolted with Talcon psychology in mind, and part of her shuddered to remember that it was her willingness to answer questions, to speak to the Terrans about her feelings, once, desires, and one made her comfortable and distressed that it weighed heavily with the planners who had put together the refugee camp. The fact that the Terrans had deployed massive machines that built the refugee center in a manner of hours still shocked her. Buxton knew why the humans had possessed the machines, why they had known that they would be needed. Humans understood war, knew that war created refugees, even before war had come to his home. They carried the podlings and chivied the sleeping and loggy brew carriers into the building they were staying in, into the elevator and down the hall to their private quarters. The brucarians sleepily gathered up the potlings in their nest, crooning softly as they drifted off to sleep. Buxton and Brentlick went back to their living room, holding hands and just being with one another for a little while. The sky went indigo and then black, the stars coming out slowly but surely. Both of them took comfort in the fact that more than a few of those stars were human warships, watching over the planets of the solar system in case the precursors returned to try and finish the job that they had started. Finally, Vuxton broke the silence. Will you take the job? Rentlick squeezed his hand. Will you? They both sat silently for a long moment. Yes, they both said at once. They asked the same question at the same time. Are you angry? And answered at the same time. No. Brentlick looked at her husband, the grey around his mouth, around the metal of his cybernetic eye, and his remaining ear, and the lines engraved into his face from having been under stress for so long. He still walked with a light limp, and the scars had not yet been covered with fur. She held his hands tightly. Citizenship is a heavy burden, she quoted. The commander of the refugee camp Osmian looked up as his newest assistant entered the office. His implant identified immediately, and he noted that her picture was in the data file upon his desk terminal and did not do her justice. Strong came to mind with the way that she carried herself. Intent was easily applied to her clear eyes and gaze. Dedicated was something that was obvious to her expression. The commander stood up. Holding out his hand, the Talcon woman took it, shaking it slowly. Brendelick took a seat and Colonel James hit Harvey's gesture, holding the printouts on her lap as she looked at the human. His skin was brown, his hair shaved away to leave a bare and gleaming scalp. 
Both eyes had been replaced by cybernetics, along with half of his face being nothing but a duly gleamed black wall steel. He looked competent to her eyes, and that was all that mattered to her. It's good to meet you, Mrs. Brentlick, Colonel Harvey said. When Fleet told me they had a good fit for the Tarkin liaison officer, I was a little worried till I received your file. Thank you, sir, Brentlick said softly. Well... That about covers the pleasantries, the human said. He touched an icon on his desk, and a map of the area popped into being in mid-air between them. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. We need to get your people out of the refugee camp and into a more permanent settlement. Let's start looking at which one needs what to make it comfortably livable. The humans were walking down the line, yelling at the little Tarquins who were lined up to stand straight. Dare straight ahead, curl those tails off the ground, close your mouths. All had little bag in front of them, holding their worldly possessions. Adaptive camouflage uniforms, modesty clothing, personal grooming devices, boots, gloves. Buxton walked with the big human who had told the lined up Tarquin that they would refer to him only as Sergeant his cybernetic eye whirring as he looked at the eager Tulkins. He limped slightly, but it no longer ached. Did I look so little, Sergeant? Buxton asked as they reached the middle of the line. You! Hell no, Trooper Buxton. You were twenty feet tall, made of wall steel and freaking fire. Sergeant half yelled, You were born to be a Marine! Buxton was at the recruiting and training center to get all the training he had missed out on, that he needed to be a marine, but he also was there to act as the Talcan liaison, to advise the human cadre, and to provide the other Talcan someone that they could confide in. A low flying aircraft went by in the clear blue sky as Buxton and Sergeant kept walking down the line of eager recruits. Brentelik stood in the front of the classroom, watching the Talcum being instructed on how to read. So many of her people were functionally illiterate, or only iconoliterate, that it hurt her heart. Colonel had agreed with her that education of her fellow Talcum would be a priority. She had been attending classes herself, learning about the trauma that was inflicted on the slave castes and the methods of easing and eventually erasing the trauma. The biggest thing all the textbooks had stressed was the feeling of independence and control. No longer living in a world full of symbols that were only unable to understand had been made a priority by Bentlick. Teaching her people to read, teaching them to value the knowledge, the importance of learning was important to her. She was proud of her people. It was difficult leaving the sheltered burrow and emerging, blinking into the terribly brightness of freedom. More than a few Tarkin bemoaned the old days, but those days were gone. She felt a swell of pride as the Tarkin Podling stood up and read aloud and was on the classroom's display. Her voice firm and sure. Her heart soared as the knowledge that the Podling could not only read, but knew the word's meanings. Brentlick knew that to others it may not be that important. But to her, it was everything... Buxton stepped out of the heavily armored vehicle, his macaque rifle that lights in his fists. Behind him, a group of half a dozen Talcan recruits followed him. They were armed with laser rifles powerful enough to damage a precursor armor, but not so strong enough to damage the war steel of the armor that they and he wore to protect themselves. Like him, they were in a final phase of sixteen weeks of hard training. 
Now they just had to prove that they could put everything that they had learned to work. All right, Lance Corporal Vuxton, this village should be cleared, but Colonel Harvey wants it swept by ground pounders, just in case, and that means you and your troopers, the voice of Lieutenant said from where he was watching with the data links inside the heavy vehicle. Just remember your training, and you'll do just fine. You'll do just fine, Vuxton. If you're unsure of what to do, talk to me. I'll help you out, Sergeant said over a different channel. Thank you both, Vuxton said as he opened the other channel. All right, men, follow me. Spread out five meters. I don't want a grenade or unexploded mortar round killing half of you, Vuxton said, trying and failing to keep the snap from his voice. His men just tabbed their affirmative icons. All of them were sweating nervously. Lieutenant Corporal Vuxton was a legend amongst the Talcan who wanted to be troopers. A janitor that became a Terran Marine. As one, they gripped their lasers tightly and started moving into what had been an overseer luxury resort. They were all eager to please Buxton, please Sergeant and Lieutenant, and please the Confederacy and the Marine Corps. They had all seen the posters, all signed up, all gone through the training that had been compressed and hurried due to the war raging outside the walls of the refugee city. The offer was amazing, more than any Talcan had ever been offered before. A simple offer, but one that, to the Talcans, used to being little more than neo-sapient slaves, reached out with, with every fiber of their beings. Service brings citizenship. A month later, an atomic charge went off in the wreckage of the city. Vuxton got that familiar tightness down his back, something... One was coming, and they weren't coming to help. Brentelek knew that feeling. It meant that someone had decided her people had something worth taking. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.